Welcome to another episode of the Tromedy Hour, everybody. My name is Jonas Barnes. I am your host this evening. Uh, per usual, um, Lauren is out doing her thing right now, so she's not on the show uh, today, but uh, I'm going to be your host. Um, just a disclaimer right up front, obviously, guys, if you've heard the show before, you know that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not any of those things. I'm just a regular person that happens to work in the entertainment industry who has gone through a lot of stuff in life that most people tell you to be quiet about. And I don't like to be quiet about those things. And we have guests on the show that also do not like to be quiet about those things. We feel like it's good to talk about stuff, especially the stuff that hurts you. So that's what we do on the show. And uh, I have a fantastic guest here today. He's one of my favorite people. Um, he's a filmmaker. He's a friend of mine. He uh, also works in the entertainment industry, obviously, if he's doing filmmaking, but he works across the board, and also he's in a different country right now. Uh, that's where he lives. He lives over in a different country. I'm over here in New York, but I will let you let him tell uh, you guys about himself, and welcome to the show, Andrew Roger Carson. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. That's that's quite a, a half intro that I got there. <laughs> Either you didn't do your research, or you really want to make me work for it this week. <laughs> I'm going to make you talk about yourself. This this is, we're going to get therapeutic as fuck on the show and you got to start by doing your own bio. Okay. Well, oh, that's a, that's a hard one. I guess I can just say, basically I'm a, I'm a writer, director, also a podcaster, as you well know, Indeed. podcasters unite. Uh, I am currently calling from uh, Manchester in the United Kingdom, which is my home base. Am I the first kind of international guest on your show? You are on this one, yeah. Over on the horror podcast, we have had definitely international guests, but as far as the Tromedy Hour goes, yeah, this is you're the first international one, man. Cool. Do, do I get a badge? Uh, you know what? You listen, you're just popping England's cherry on this one. So, like, the first time is always a little bloody. So, we're not giving out awards quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can even follow that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I guess I can actually take the title of the one person who walked 80 minutes just to come and say hi. You did, dude. You walked so long. For anybody that doesn't understand New York and Brooklyn, especially like me, we walk, we walk all over the place. We walk a lot. But when Andrew was in town, he told me where he was and he was like, hey, I'm just going to walk over to you and, you know, we're going to have a bite or a drink or whatever. And I looked where he was. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you sure? And he was like, yeah, it's fine. I can get some walks in. And it was the longest walk. <laughs> it was so long. So by the time he got there, and he was, he was like, I, I fucked up. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have walked <laughs> that whole time. <laughs> you know, it was, it was so much easier when I was younger. But if anything taught me that, hey, you're in your mid-40s now. You've got to cut this shit out. It was that walk to uh, Bushwick. And I think when I got there, I was so out of breath. I was just, I was absolutely shattered, tired. I was like, oh, my God, I'm just going to pass out in front of this guy. And this is the first time we've actually gotten together. But Dude, no. the, the fact that you didn't pass out was like, that was impressive enough. It was just like, you're still standing upright. You're already, you're already beating me on that one. If I would have made that walk, dude. There would have been pallbearers carrying my fucking body to come say hi to you. Like, I would have been <laughs> dead. There's no way. <laughs> the fact that I got an Uber driver back uh, uh, back to the apartment I was staying in uh, on the other side of Brooklyn, and that trip back was like, did I really walk this long? Because 
Yeah. This car ride back actually feels longer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> while you're dealing with car traffic and everything. It's so weird when you get an Uber in New York because it's like this is only a mile and a half away, but it's going to take 25 minutes. And it's like, are you wow, wow, like traffic being that bad right in the middle of the city? That's the thing that happens. Yeah, and if there's any better introduction to talking about mental health, that story kind of really tops where we're going with it. Absolutely. So this no is something that's also interesting I wanted to bring up with you being on the show because, you know, we kind of talked before the show and pre-gamed a little bit on the things that we we're going to talk about today. But with you being a filmmaker and being a writer, being a director, being all those things and working in movies, before we even get into the stuff that you deal with does mental health and mental health problems and mental health experience does that translate over to filmmaking for you that's actually a good question um yes and no okay yes it helps you more creatively and especially more creative with your time but and it's something that i did want to touch on a bit later on as a kind of extended but it's we can jump into it later too yeah there's there's still this kind of stigma about uh mental health in the industry and it's still something that people keep incredibly quiet about and i don't think that really has to be the case and there's there's some interesting statistics i wanted to bring up a little bit later on on it definitely one i mean not being quiet about it is exactly what we're doing here today so exactly you know. exactly and and to be honest every single person i know has something about them right 100%. and and depression and things like that they're not they're still in a phase of not being taken seriously in a lot of circles sure and um the entertainment industry one you've got to be crazy to get into it because you kind of do yeah no, no sane person would push themselves out into this medium. Uh, actors and actresses especially. Right. Oh, hello. I just had a, a doorbell ring. Was that on your side? Wasn't on my side. Did my you? Are, are you starting the purge right now? Is that what's going on? <laughs> I think that's it. That's Hollywood saying you best not be talking about this. It um, is, dude. It's like you're talking about mental health problems in our industry. We fucking got you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, men, the the kind of issues that I've had, and mine grew over a number of years and a number of traumas, of which I will, will basically cover. But it's over the last couple of years when I really just accepted it and really focused on how to deal with it. I started writing my best stuff, which started getting a lot of interest. And that was from a real kind of acceptance of, I know what my issues are and I know how to write about them. And I know how to create characters out of that. And you, you see it in a lot of independent film nowadays. They're not really shy about showcasing that. You know, a lot of the well, film, in, indie, film now, indie film, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Hollywood, not so much. You know, Hollywood still has that, you know, <laughs> I'll use the lethal weapon analogy a bit later on, right, of, of how we really look at mental illness in a Hollywood movie. And it's well, not it, really changed. Tell me, if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but when it comes to Hollywood stuff, like mainstream Hollywood stuff, they're either going for a movie that is all about mental illness, 
like straight up girl interrupted style or oh, yeah. or they're just not fucking with it at all like they'll do like or they'll make it like a comedic thing like some weird thing where it's like it's like ah she's a schizo but it's hilarious or or they go full the other direction yeah you, you can hearken it back to what what an example did i use um not so long ago um, a deadly more movie called crazy people right that the title gives it away straight away right you know this is uh dudley moore is an advertising executive and he gets this inspiration to actually tell the truth through advertising so all of his commercials like tell the truth about the products in a not so nice way that people wouldn't like so they haven't committed you know and they have all of these um actors around him be crazy people suicidal people you know and it's played purely for laughs um that's something that is still prominent especially in comedy you know uh, mental health it's it's not something really to be laughed at i mean unless you kind of suffer and find the actual fun in it well sure yeah well and i like when it comes to stand-up comedy and film comedy there's two different it feels like two different brands that are working on with that because in stand-up a lot of the time we get humor out of the pain so like the shit that we went through translates on stage to us telling a story that ends up having funny stuff within that story Whereas when it comes to film, like if you have, and again, you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong on this, you have more experience with it than I do. But when you come to mental illness in film, you use it, it's being used as either a plot point or like a crutch or, or like a thing that's almost a trope at this point where you have movies like say Shutter Island where ah, he was a patient the whole time you know and you have stuff like that or you have stuff like um you have stuff a lot of horror movies especially they'll use the whole split personality thing or they'll use the whole like it was an illusion the whole time because the person was nuts you know um they made an entire movie about that with split you know where yeah that type of thing or fight club for that matter you know, Fight, Fight Club is probably one of the most popular movies um, in recent memory that has to do with mental illness stuff and things like that. But then even going back to like Rain Man, you know, going yeah. back to a movie like that, again, all about mental illness, but it's used as like a vehicle to tell a much more fucked up story. And yeah, that I mean, seems to be the case with Hollywood a lot. Well, the case against Rain Man, and I do have to bring this up because I have two children with autism. Right. Okay. And nothing made me more wiser uh, to kind of a lot of the different world that people with these kind of uh, mental illnesses or autism, and I'm not placing them in the same category at all before I start getting anyone, you know, jumping on my case. For sure. Um, it's, it's definitely okay to it's okay to mention that within the same within the same family though like yeah. just mentioning autism for what it is autism is it, it's part mental illness sort of but like it also has aspects to it that are damn near a superpower so like there's there's oh. definitely a little bit of both <laughs> yeah i mean my, me myself uh i didn't know i had learning difficulties at a young age until i had children who had autism and the traits were there and then it was like hang on a minute 
I had that problem and I still have kind of problems to this day that I thought, you know, <laughs> back when, you know, I was in, this was like the year 1980s, they didn't really class autism back then, you know, and you were either just slow or a bit dim or crazy or anything like that. You, you were kind of just placed in the different boat, as they put it. Um, but when I realized uh, and saw uh, these traits and then started to think back, I mean, I was, you know, never assessed when I was young. I knew I had certain problems, but I thought there's stuff that, you know, I could not grasp. Like math, forget about it. I'm terrible with numbers. And I have a certain way where if you gave me four numbers, I can't remember them. Right? For three numbers, it's fine. But if you gave me a phone, say like a PIN number on uh, a credit card, I can't even remember my own PIN numbers. So, like, you can remember the three numbers on the back of a card, like the security yes. code, the three number security code on the back of a card. But if it's four number PIN number, your brain's like, nope, I'm fucking out. I'm tapping yeah. out. Like, uh, and the worst thing is, I have, it's almost like anxiety attacks. If I'm left to do math, if I've got to add up, sums or do my accounts or anything like that i really get anxious and i really start having panic attacks and getting really stressed out about it you know and that's really and not to cut you off on this but i want to mention this while you mention that because this is something kind of correlates with me but in the opposite direction because with math with me when i was in school and they made me do like a problem where I had to work out my entire answer, like on paper, where I had to write down all the steps and like do all that yeah. stuff. When they made me do that, something in my brain made me made me double think what I was doing. And I would always get the problem wrong. So I would step on my own toes because I would overthink the problem. But then if I told my teacher, if I walk up to you at the end of class and I look at the, you know, the homework, and I yeah. do and I do the problem in my head and tell you the answer. Can I get whatever grade on this paper? And she was like, yeah, you can do that. But there's no way you're going to do that. She was like, because she's old school teacher. She's like, no, you got to show your work and blah, blah, blah. So if I did it in my head, I was fine because I would do it in my head. I would get to the conclusion and my brain would stop there and be like, that's the answer. But if I'm writing all of it down and writing all of it out, my brain goes fucking crazy and it's like, ah, maybe that's not the right answer. Maybe you got to go back and recheck this and this and this and make sure. And it was specifically with math. It would always do that. So like all throughout school, I had to be like, I can't write my workout or I'm fucked. Like I'll just, I'll fail yeah. the whole class. Even though I know the answers, I'll fail the whole thing. No, I, I fully get it. You know, it's, it's very similar and it's, everyone's brain is wired a bit differently. Right? And, and people have all kinds of things. The, the other thing with me is if you asked me straight to my face and said, which is left and which is right, I can't do it. It's, it's very weird. It's a very basic thing. And this is the reason why I failed three driving tests. <laughs> and it's true. I don't drive to this day, which is why I walk all the way to you in Bushwick. 
Um, Did you just look at the driving teacher like, listen, you you hit me with a hard question right up front, uh, left or right. I just I can't fucking do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it takes it takes a serious amount. It takes something like five to seven seconds of me trying to figure out in my head what left and right is. And I had to develop a certain way where in I basically think of the word lever, L-E-V-E-R, and what side the L and what side the R is on. Oh and shit! That is, and that is how I tell what my left and right is, and I still do it to this day. You know, so I know it's it's kind of not even really getting into like the the mental illness and depression and stuff, but it's kind of a no, no, no. This is all. This, listen, this is this is an open slate type of a thing. Like when we talk about this stuff, it doesn't matter which direction it goes into. We talk about all sorts of shit. So whatever direction it happens to go in, it's it's free range. But yeah, the thing to, that you're just, talking about is. Yeah, the stuff that you're talking about is interesting, too, because like if I go back in my family, like my little brother has autism and he is a genius, absolute fucking genius. But if he sees certain things that are like off kilter or if they're off balance, he has to like pause, look at it and he has to go readjust it like he has to. He can't look at it and see that it's like that it's not in its place it's supposed to be and it's like there's part of it that seemed like it was ocd at first but then when he went through all the tests and everything no he had like straight up he had autism so he would do that and then he's that way with numbers he's that's what that way with words um he's that way with certain things like um something as simple as a hamburger he has to have a hamburger plain he can't have anything on it because if anything touches it and he didn't put it on him on it himself his brain is just like, nope, somebody fucked with that. You can't touch it. Like, That is so, so interesting. That is really, really interesting because, um, well, even though I'm going to delve into this a little bit, and I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, no, no, no. About a hamburger, and this is something that, you know, I'm actually finds really hilarious. But um, I can't eat a hamburger the way that everyone else eats a hamburger. I have to disassemble a burger. And eat it piece by piece. I've heard that too. I've I've legitimately heard that from people that have similar things to my brother. So like sometimes they'll yeah they straight up will have to they'll have to take the bun off, they'll take the the veggies off, like all that stuff. Like if they're gonna have it like that, they have to disassemble it. But yeah. like and he, and he's also the same thing. Like he when he was younger, it was a thing where like. If we went out to a restaurant, no matter what it was, Mexican food, Japanese food, whatever, he would only order the same thing at every restaurant. And there was no way to get him to order anything else. So if we went to a restaurant that did not have chicken strips, he was like, all right, cool. I'm not having dinner tonight. Like, I'll have dinner when we get home. <laughs> like he, And there was nothing you could do to change his mind. He was like, "Yeah, nope. It's like this. He was like, because if I try to eat anything else from this restaurant... It's going to fuck me up. Like, I can't do it. So we were, when we were younger, when my mom, when he was younger, my mom was kind of like, what the fuck's going on? And my mom works in medicine. Like she's worked in hospitals for almost her entire life. So she kept on thinking about it. She was like, okay, there's something going on. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is something that's different. So it's something that we have to alter, like, you know, just what we're doing um, to kind of, you know, adapt, I guess the best way to put it. 
and the more that we looked into it, the more we got tested on everything. It's like, oh yeah, he, he straight up has autism. That's what it is. He just happens to have this flavor of autism because there's definitely, they call it a spectrum for a reason. Like it's very wide. This just happens to be his version like that he has. Um, And now like he works as a machinist. He fucking makes, um, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of Kendamas. Oh yeah. Yeah. He makes those like in his woodworking. Like he's, he's an incredible artist and uh, machinist. He's so talented. And a lot of it really bases back to what goes on in his head, you know, all the sharp edges and the angles and like the details and all these things that he's very attuned to. But still, you put ketchup on his hamburger before he gets it, and he's like, "Fuck you, can't touch it." Like, it's just it's you know, it yeah. is what it is. No, no, I fully get it, and you know, it, it relates a lot to me growing up. I, I knew I had this problem with math, right? And I don't think my parents could get it at the time. I don't think my teacher could get it. Who is a, a real grade A asshole that you could only get in nineteen eighties as a teacher you know, who likes to embarrass you in front of every other kid in the class. And I had that guy. Um, So I'm there, I'm struggling, but all of my energy went into creative stuff. I could write the most amazing stories as an infant. And I latched on to movies very, very early on, but in a way that no one else could believe that I could, because I knew everything. So if I had, uh, say, the video box back in the days when you had VHS, maybe people before 2000, well, born after 2000 don't know you what that is. You fucking dinosaurs with I your know. VHS. No, I totally remember. I remember, I remember, how, remember, when, remember when you had to have two VHS, two VCRs next to each other to record from one to the other? Just yeah, like an, like an That was asshole. called piracy. <laughs> yeah, just like a fucking asshole. You got to have an entire credenza worth of VHS machines to do this shit. And it's just like, is this worth it? I mean, for now, I guess until I know better. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. T- t- we're the generation that knows what tracking is, you know. Oh, God, we do. That, uh, that required a certain amount of patience. That's a, that's a conversation to get into one day. You could do an entire show just on, you know, the expertise of programming a VCR. Dude, those things are uh, wild. Those things are yeah. like those technologically speaking, if you look at them, if you break those down as a person who's into electronics or a person who smokes meth also as a person who's into electronics, uh, if you break one of those things down, like technologically speaking, they're very intricate, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's crazy, especially compared to shit now. You look at a, one thing now, it's like, oh, no, it's just a computer chip. But no, a VCR, it's got so many different moving parts. Start going back to a film projector. Jesus Christ. You got all sorts of stuff. Like one little thing is off. Whole thing's fucked. <laughs> Just yeah. entirely. Yeah, but like I said, when it came, I was crap at maths, but I used to be able to get these VCR videotapes. I could tell you everything about that movie that was written on those boxes i could tell you the running times i could tell you who worked in every department on it and i could used to be able to watch a film once or twice and know every word of dialogue it was just there i had imdb in my brain before imdb existed it was crazy 
and it's it's helped me greatly in my career. It's crazy now knowing that names that I saw on the back of those video boxes are basically mentors to me to this day. Which is I mean, there's probably some that you've worked with now, you know. Yeah, yeah. Where you've looked back and seen that. Yeah, I had one of the greatest experiences where I was, uh, and I won't say his name because he probably won't want it. It's all good. But uh, I (laughs) unintentionally pitched uh, a project to uh, a director who I grew up admiring in the 80s. And we were just on a a Zoom call. And I told him, oh, what you should do is uh, some of this. It was regarding one of his previous movies that he'd made in the 80s. I said, oh, yeah, you should do this with it and this with it and, you know, do a series of it. And he was like, that's amazing. You know, that's a great idea. Who would we get to write it? And I was like, well, I'd write it. He was like, well, I was actually going to inquire whether you'd actually write it. And I wrote this thing over a winter period only two years ago during the pandemic. Uh, And I'll, I'll get into that a bit more in a bit. But he came back to me and he said, this is amazing. I can see it. You are good. You are very good. And it was the greatest, one of the greatest moments I think I've ever had in my life. That was better than a parent saying they're proud of you. You know, that that was like something that just reached into your childhood and pulled you through, you know? Yeah. When it comes to a professional mentor, especially, it's like, that's kind of a that's a whole different animal because i think you know when it comes to parental stuff and it comes to this is this could also open a whole different fucking can of worms but when it comes to parental stuff and like comes to family things like when somebody that's in your family says that they're proud of you there's this like kind of split brain thing where it's just like yeah but you're fucking supposed to say that like (laughs) you're supposed to like you're proud of me i'm i'm dumb i did a dumb thing quit telling me you're proud of me but like there's obviously shitty parents are not doing that they're just like they're just like no you're a fuck up get out of my house but when it's somebody who's a professional mentor they have no reason to tell you that if they're not actually sincere about it like especially if they're somebody who's above you in the pay grade you know like they have no reason to kiss your ass so hearing that from somebody especially that you know you consider a mentor is that's a big thing like, that totally is a big thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- this was right in the period where I was fighting um, seasonal affective disorder, which has the unfortunate breakdown of SAD, SAD, which some asshole got paid to think <laughs> that up. Right. He doesn't you know suffer that, from it. I guarantee you. know it. that somebody patented it, and he was like, I just made a patent for SAD. They're like, you're an asshole. and i guarantee you don't suffer with this shit either you just read the uh results of a chart um so yeah uh, seasonal affective disorder um i got uh, assessed a couple of years ago uh well this was probably around 2016 maybe getting into 2017 because i've been suffering a lot unknowingly but uh, it was a culmination of a lot of things, and we kind of got a backtrack to lead up to it, if you don't mind. Uh, it's but, totally fine. But real but quick before you get into it, I have a question. Do you? Yes. What can you say if you even have an outlook on this? What is the difference between seasonal affective disorder and, se- and seasonal depression? Or are they the same thing? It's the same thing. 
Okay. In my view, it's the same thing. I mean, I've never heard it separated into two things before. So I'm I'm going to say it's the same thing, but I hope no one quotes me on that. I'm no doctor. As much as no, no, it's definitely definitely more of an opinion question because yeah. I, have, I have situations sometimes too where it hits a certain season and my brain is like, fuck the summer. Like it just, for whatever <laughs> reason, like it's just what it is, no matter where I am in the country, it could be a beautiful summer. And my brain's just like, nope, I'm out. Like I just... <laughs> Well, we're going to be sad and warm for three months. All right. Just deal with it. It's like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, the, the other name for seasonal affective disorder, especially the one uh, that I suffer with, is known as winter blues, which sounds like a really bad jazz album. I feel like winter. I feel like winter blues is the album that came out from Eric Clapton after his son died. Like I feel oh. like that's the one where it's just like that's the. Oh. It's one of those. <laughs> We're going there, are we? Okay, it is um, the tromedy hour. What are we doing? It's the tromedy hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's very weird for me. I start to feel the symptoms of it come on roughly around the end of October. And it is linked to, um, obviously, we lose a lot of sun here in the UK. So we're lucky to get around six hours of it a day for like five months. And it's nowhere near enough. And unfortunately, I've had so many instances where I've missed out on going out into the sunshine, whatever sun there is. Um, right. It's, it's the UK, so it's just pissing down with rain during the daytime, and it's cloudy as fuck. So you, you guys live in Seattle. At all. That's that's yeah. what it is. You live in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seattle is jealous of the amount of rain that we get because we get so much more. You yeah. know, LA bag for us. They just want me to bring it through in, uh, in an extra suitcase. Just throw it on yeah, the street. Please, br- please bring us some. Yeah. Half of our state is on fire all the time. Please bring us more rain. <laughs> yeah. But you start to suddenly feel the shift in everything, you know, it is so weird. I don't know how I managed to get through those first couple of years, but I know I was really bad with it. And I will admit, and this is probably the first place I'm ever going to admit this, you know, it gets you to a point where you feel you do not want to wake up the next day. Right. There was oh, yeah. one day I was even thinking I could jump in front of this train on a platform and it feels a rational idea. You know, sure. Uh, my life wasn't even bad, but that's how it gets you. And on top of that, your appetites change. You know, you, you start really craving carbs like crazy. So I put weight on like you would not believe over Christmas. You know, it's it's terrible. And it's, it's not exactly the, the best season for healthy food either. So it doesn't help. No, no. No, you, nobody goes into Christmas thinking, I'm going to eat so many fucking vegetables this year. It's going to be great. Like, nobody does that. Like, you guys so badly, but there's always that dickhead in your family who buys you this giant tin of chocolates. Yeah, of course. Like, there is. Every time. Every single time. And also, like, this thing. So I want to, like, go back to what you said about the seasonal affective disorder and how it makes you feel. Like, this is the thing that's interesting with suicidal thoughts. I've gone through my own issues with it. I've gone through, um, I've gone through the issues with it with family, and the thing that I try to explain to people is it's similar to depression, in the sense that depression is not sadness. It's not a rational thought. It is a absence of happiness. Like yes. 
So the difference between it being sad is you can go out and you could you could fucking go jerk off and fix sadness. All right. That's just not that's not how you fix depression. That's not, that's not what it does. <laughs> it's uh, that's just a sad jerk off by yourself. But the thing is, with when it comes to a suicidal thought is that in the moment, it's like your brain gets hijacked by something that says this is a perfectly rash decision. Go ahead and do it. Now, when you sit back from that and look at it, you're like, well, it's not rational at all. Like there's plenty of things going on that I would enjoy that I could do that are going on in life that like, if you actually can step back and look at it, you'll see all those things. But in the moment, those things don't exist. Like however good your life is just fucking it. That does not exist at all in that moment. No, I mean, it's, it's very true. And the worst thing was I was not in a bad place at all. I'd had a lot of bad things happen that just dwelled. Right. I went so many years without actually discussing my problems with anybody. Now, just to kind of go back here. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a hard growing up because I had a lot of problems with learning. And I always felt I was like the stupid kid because a lot of people make right. you feel like you're the stupid kid. And yeah, when dickheads. But yeah, that gets imprinted on you when you're young. It stays with you for so long. Now, my comeback to this um you know, in I think I was 16 years old, you know, I discovered drugs. Okay, as most people do. That's now, right about the time that I discovered them too, 15, 16. And yeah. Um, yeah, so 16 years old, and that went straight through until I was 25. Right. And so I'm you're, talking, you're talking like 10 years, about right around 10 years of oh, pretty yeah. constant. It's a hard thing to kind of look back on. And I see a lot of my friends from my old hometown who knew me back then, you know, and they were just saying, oh, oh God, we were so concerned about you. Some people even said, God, we thought you were a write-off. We thought you were going to be dead by 30. You know, I'm, I'm sure my, a lot of my family were disappointed in me. I'm sure my mother and father were disappointed in me as well. But I didn't care. You know, I was so rebellious, and I don't even know what I was rebellious against. And um, I, I kind of look back on it now. I knew that I was on a major downward spiral. And I've kind of got against this. What got me out of that and made me just say no more of this shit is I actually met a girl. And there's always that one girl you suddenly just want to be a better person for. Sure. You know, and uh, this girl, I was introduced to her uh, by a friend. Uh, I was was living in the same building. She, She had come down. And I remember saying, I suddenly don't want to be this person I am because I feel like the person I am does not deserve this person. Right. So I don't think I've ever told her to this day. I'm sure she's going to listen to this. Um, but uh, she's going to be like, really? I had to hear it on a podcast. Really? Yeah. Andrew? Like- <laughs> yeah. But um, she made me want to be a better person. And her name was Gemma. So hi, Gemma, if you're listening. Um, that kind of caused me to like, okay, I'm giving this shit up because I want to, I don't want to be, viewed as a fuck up by this girl you know i really do like her and uh you know i want to kind of be the best i can be and i'd not really spoken to my father in god probably about 10 years i think by that point uh we'd had a bit of a falling out uh probably over the way i was which i can honestly say that probably was the reason um because i was just inconsolable and i'm a massive prick 
which I'm sure a lot of people are nodding their heads saying, yeah, he was. Um, I blame the drugs. I remember when I was an 18, 18 to 20 year old drug user, I was a fucking dick. (laughs) Straight up. It was just like, oh, I don't want to be around Jonas right now. He's, he's being himself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We we all go through it. And some of us are just slower at getting out of it than others, you know? And I don't think I was surrounded by positive people around that time. I don't think a lot of people knew how bad my situation was. It was really to get through because I was living in a town where there was no real creative outlet. We didn't even have a cinema in that town, you know? So you had to go to video stores to watch your movies and you'd go to Dude, the how small bar. was your town if you didn't have even a cinema? Like uh, it was small. It, Dude, it's, it's a small town. It still is. You know, but it's, I've been I've been to heart. some towns that have like four families and that's it, and they still have a fucking movie house. <laughs> like there's still yeah. like if we don't watch a movie in this place, we're going to end up killing each other. So we got to have this. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, it was one of those towns. And that's all we ever knew. So we never really had one. So going to the cinema was a, a very rare thing growing up, which is why I obviously used to memorize all of these video boxes. So she, uh, she changed my life around. And she got me talking to my father again, of which... I loved her for you could not believe. Okay. And this was the first person I could only say my heart fully went for. And a tragic thing happened. My father died like six months later out of the blue. And it set me off in a really bad way because I could not handle it. And I was, it was, a lot of selfish thinking is, as it goes, I was like, you know, how can this happen? I've only just got him back in my life. I'm starting to get myself back together, you know, and, and I, I just want him to be proud of me for one thing. And I was robbed of that. I, I felt robbed of that. And I know my family all feel that loss and still feel that loss to this day. And so do I. Um, but I had no way of really processing that. It was the first real loss that I had. So uh, unfortunately, I think I just became inconsolable. And I didn't revert back to who I was. But I don't think Gemma could deal with it. And it ended. And the worst thing about it, I mean, we were engaged. It ended. And I was such an asshole about it ending. Because she said she couldn't do it anymore. I could have fought for it. But me being a dick that I was, I didn't. And I, from there, it was like, shit, this is probably the, the worst period I'm going through. I've made it even worse. How can it get worse? Uh, right. I ended up meeting someone else. Uh, I ended up uh, having my daughter with the, the person I met after her. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a real it was a toxic relationship, but I, I don't hold any animosity towards my ex-wife about it. We were just two people who probably never should have been together. Sure. Um, I mean, that's that's not that's not very not incredibly uncommon. No, you know, and and we look at it now, and we can agree to each other that you know we, we gave this like a five-year run. We had two kids together, and it just it shouldn't have been. But you know, there's two wonderful kids out of it. Um, so it's, it's not all negative, but I don't think we really gelled. 
and two people two people can be great parents and just not be together like that's that absolutely is a thing like two people yeah. can love their children to death and just you know their relationship just doesn't work anymore for whatever reason i mean like but that's not that's not uh that's a thing that's weirdly taboo is that like yeah. if you have children with somebody you have to be in this relationship and like if that relationship is not working and that relationship is bad and toxic and whatever that is far worse for the children than definitely you guys being separated and being like no 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 no, we're here for you guys but as far as you and i go like we don't have to do anything outside of you know friendship or whatever it is that you have but yeah forcing yourself to stay together just because there's children involved oftentimes backfires catastrophically yeah i mean the worst thing is we got married right at the end of it eight days later we were separated eight days after our marriage we were separated and that's how bad it was you know we, we were just struggling. I was doing a film degree, you know, at university. I was doing a master's degree in film production because I, when my father died, I was so annoyed that he never really got to see me creatively. It spurned me to actually go to film school later in life. So I went to film school when I got my degrees as a way of just kind of chasing, you know, and making something of myself. Um, and the separation came, it, it was bad. It was a really bad separation in the fact that overnight I lost, uh, it was, it was practically overnight where I just managed to lose my wife, my kids, my house, my dog, and every penny I owned. In, Did you just write a country song? I think you just wrote a country song. <laughs> if you play that backwards, my life would still be terrible. <laughs> but, um, it was it was a very kind of hostile kind of environment. I had to start from scratch. I had nothing, absolutely nothing. I didn't even have a home. I couch surfed for a couple of weeks. I managed right. to get a place, you know, managed to get some family, gave me some money saying, look, just get yourself in a house and start building back up. All I had was my film degree. So I was not going to lose that. So, right. you know, something was just keeping me on. I've got to finish this degree. And then I ended up meeting um, my, my fiance Kate. And, you know, she took me in, God bless her. And, you know, she gave me this platform to really build upon. And see what I mean? We've already got Harley Davidson's going past my window. <laughs> Words, I'm shocked that I have not had any of those outside yet because usually <laughs> we have fucking bike racers, like motorcycle racers. They go back and no. forth. So I'm shocked that we haven't had any of those yet. You're doing well. well. We'll get the uh, the Bushwick fire engine at some point. I'm telling you, it will. There will inevitably be a siren where somebody's either dying or on fire, like one <laughs> of the two. <laughs> but you see, the thing is, with all of that happening in such a small amount of time, I didn't realize I had trauma from that until much later. Sure, but, um, it was just there, and I was so focused. I put all of my energy into like I've just got to get one thing fucking right you know, this decade, I have got to finish this degree and make a career on myself, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I was, I was focused on doing that. And within a year, I'd, you know, I'd had my first kind of pitch at Pinewood Studios in uh, London. That was totally unexpected because I was just asking for advice from all of these producers and directors. And I got invited down there and I ended up walking out with a deal. And I was like, 
how the shit did that happen? I'm still in the middle of my degree. You know? I mean, stranger you know? things have happened in the movie industry. It it is, it, and I wasn't prepared for it because did you, you know, did you go to the casting couch, Andrew? Is that is that what happened? You went to the black couch, the casting <laughs> couch. <laughs> if I didn't, then I was sure bound to with what happened next. Um, <laughs> but the kind of miraculous thing happened not even three months later. I got invited to Los Angeles um, by the Estevez Sheen family. Now, I am still doing a degree in film school, but I had built up this bit of a rapport with uh, Charlie Sheen's brother, Ramon, who's become a really solid friend. And they basically invited me over. Now, I didn't even have a passport at this point. I had to get a passport. You know, they brought me over. I'm walking straight into the set of anger management on my first day in a new country. Right? And these guys just like, give me everything. They were just like, you know, we really like you, you know, you're really genuine and we want to see you succeed. And, you know, they've been behind me since day one. I was still doing a master's degree at this point, you know, and Hollywood just kind of opened its doors to me. But this was the problem. I look back now, I was no way ready for that because I still had a lot of shit going on. I had this project that suddenly I was going to direct. I was going to direct here in the UK. You know, um, Esther Sheen were fully behind me. I got a producer out in the US, you know, who was, you know, fully behind me and supporting me. But I was still, I'd not even been tested in the industry at that point, you know, other than making a, a bunch of short movies and, you know, movies on very flimsy, small budgets. I had no success and suddenly it was catapulted and everywhere was talking about me and some of it, not even in a good light. A lot of people blasted the shit out of me online. Like who the hell is this kid? Listen, publicity is publicity, especially when yeah. you're early on. Like, I mean, if you can, if you can ride a little bit of a coattail onto some, onto somebody talking some shit, let that coast into the positive stuff, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, we had like casting meetings and everything. We had stars that were ready to go for it. I was like, shit, you know, I'm, I'm becoming that boondock saint guy, but not kind of an asshole. <laughs> Dude, there's so many stories about, about him. I, I don't even give a fuck if I name him Troy Duffy. Dude, there's yeah. like, it's kind of one of those things that like, do I like boondock saints? Fuck yeah, I do. Is it a good movie? Not really. Uh, Dude. Was I kind of happy when Boondock Saints 2 came out? Fuck yeah, I was until I watched it. And then I also also read all the stories about him and stuff. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, no wonder. I saw, this the, I saw the documentary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was like, that was an eye opener for me. It's like, that's not who I want to be. Yeah, don't and be I, that guy. Don't be. And it's, and it's really hard because, you know, when you, when you originally, when I got into Hollywood, I was this, I was basically Crocodile Dundee. You know, I'd never been to anywhere, you know, especially another country. And I'm, I'm, I somehow developed this ability to get in front of absolutely anybody. I mean, I'm getting in front of major producers. I'm getting invited to all these studios. And my thinking was like, this could all end tomorrow. And I still think that to this day, you know, this could all end tomorrow. I'm just thankful that I got to do something in my life and I wish my dad could have seen it. 
know, and I was happy that my mum was able to get to see me do all this stuff at least. But um, my mind was not where it should have been because I, I was still carrying a lot of this pain inside. Now, and little did I know that was kind of influencing my writing at the time. Uh, oh, un- a- unresolved trauma absolutely can do that. Yeah. Like I, I, this is, I'm going to only jump into this really quick because it goes along with what you're saying. We have very parallel experiences when it comes to, um, our father, um, in the, but mine was much earlier. So mine didn't have anything to do with a girl. Mine happened. So when I was young, my biological father was a coked out nightmare. Um, when he was not a coked out nightmare, he absolutely loved his kid, you know? So there was, when I was growing up, the only thing I knew about him was the bad stuff. And then when I was like 12 or so, he finally had somehow gotten rights through the court to do supervised visitations. So I was essentially meeting my biological father for the first time when I was 12. So, When I went from 12 to 13, I had developed an, a relationship with my father again, a new relationship, um, kind of gotten to know who he was, who he is, blah, 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 blah. And the last thing that I said to him was I gave him a hug and I said, I love you and I forgive you. And then a week later, he was dead and it was out of nowhere. And it was one of those things where my mom woke me up in the middle of the night and she told me, and like, it was weird because when she told me, like, I did not cry at all. Like it wasn't even, there wasn't even an attempt at crying. I was more like, what the fuck did you just say to me right now? Like, (laughs) what were the words that just came out of your face? And so I sat there with it for a second and I was like, okay, I just saw him a week ago. Like, what's going on you know i'm 13 so it's like my 13 year old brain is still very much like oh complicated emotions are here uh so i didn't start crying until i talked to my grandma because i talked to my grandma which is his mom and she was just destroyed so then it was like oh no she's crying so that means i have to cry so like ah you know and then it was just waterworks but the thing is that that whole experience triggered an avalanche of traumatic stuff that I did not deal with until I was oh what am I now I'm 39 now so I didn't deal with that until I was probably about 32 yeah and then I started the process of dipping my toes into therapy stuff but I didn't get into like therapy therapy until probably about the last five years and that's when I uncovered fucking everything. Yeah. And that's when it was like, whoa, there was a lot of stuff back there that I didn't know was in there. And that's what, and when I was going through that, it, I was starting to realize, I was like, oh shit, that, that really influenced my writing and my tastes in movies and my tastes in people for that matter. Like there was just so many things that were like just illuminated immediately. It was just like, oh shit. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very similar. I, I was the kind of similar age. Um, so for me, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with all of this kind of instant notoriety as this kid who's just been plucked from somewhere, you know, from, from practically nowhere, just because I'd written the script that everyone was loving, everyone wanted me to go and make. 
And I'm doing everything in my head. So like, do not let this go to your head because, you know, I, I've, I've still got to deal with a lot of kind of shit going on, you know, and, and writing that script was my therapy in a way because I didn't seek the counseling until much later. Uh, but it came to a point, I think it was 2015, where um, we're expecting uh, my son, Ethan, around this time. And Kate, my partner, um, she had placenta preview. So she ended up in hospital and she couldn't have a regular type birth, but she was in hospital for a month, month and a half. And I'm spending every single day with her by her bedside because I'm terrified because, you know, our son, Ethan, was not expected. It was a, it was a really happy surprise. And I thought, I'm going to get this chance, you know, again and to be there for this child all the time now in, instead of, you know, a, a kind of divorcee dad, you know see them on weekends or whatever sure. yeah of course yeah. you don't want to be um, that guy yeah but you know I'm, nobody I'm strives to be that guy nobody's like no, you know what no. i'm going to be the one that's there every month once like yeah. just like all right <laughs> exactly you know it's I, I can understand it's hard for guys you know because they have to have this life as well as you know the shadow of their old life in a way you know they've kind of got a dip in both and, and share this time but with me, it was a case of I'm working so hard and getting you know prepared for this movie, and I've got to be mentally prepared. And then I've got to spend this time at the hospital. I've got all of these cast members because we had this thing cast. You know, we were going, we had all of these people ready, and I've gotten extras from here in Manchester. We were going to shoot it here in Manchester, and there was a lot of fever about it. It was being featured in the news. You know all of these actors and everything were retweeting this story about me and I'm really uncomfortable about it. You know, I'm, I'm like, shit, you know, I, I don't think this is good, but the producers at the time, they were like, no, this publicity is great. You can't buy this publicity. You know, it's, it's you've got to ride this. And I'm like, I'm not comfortable with this at all. So Kate's there with uh, placenta previous. She goes in that morning. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to give birth from that this morning. So we're there, you know, uh, my son's born, she has to have a C-section. And, you know, it's this beautiful moment. And then Kate starts slipping out of consciousness. I get rushed out of that operating room. And for the next 25 minutes, I'm sat in a hallway, convinced a doctor is about to walk through and tell me she's died. Right? And look, she didn't. You know, she ended up having 11 blood transfusions and not able to, like, get out of bed for three months afterwards but for that um, moment just so you know that literally just gave me goosebumps like hearing yeah. you say that you were waiting for the doctor to say that oh it was horrible holy uh, shit it was, it was the longest amount of time ever and you know you have those scenes in the movies where it's like the sound just fades out all around you and you just hear your own heartbeat it was just like that yeah, I was going to say, I've seen that in movies a million times and it's never made me feel the way that I just got that feeling. And I think it's because I know you. So it's just yeah. like hearing it come from somebody that I know. My body had just a visceral, natural reaction to it where like sometimes, I don't know, like if you get caught doing something you're not supposed to and then all of a sudden all of the temperature in your body drops and you get cold yeah. for some reason, like 
that's kind of what my body just did. It was just like, whoa, instant visceral yeah. reaction. It, it's it's weird. I can remember it clear as day, you know, and, and I'm sitting there and I've got all of these messages going from like Facebook and messages, you know, what's happening? What's going on? I'm, I don't know. What, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. You know, and I've got Kate's mother's messaging me, well, what's going on? And I'm sitting there and I'm literally so on edge. You know, I, I, I'm like, please, God, do not let this happen to me now. You know, do not take this away. I fought so hard to kind of get to a place of something good happening in my life. You know, and I don't know if I'm not ready to be this like single father raising a child. I don't know if I can do it. You know, all of this shit's going through my head. And then the worst possible fucking thing happens. Right. And not a lot of people know this, but I, I will gladly tell this story now. And a lot of people will kind of understand with what followed. So I'm waiting there. I've got all these messages going off. And my phone rings. And it's one of the actors one of the actors who has only a small role in the movie. Right. Now he'd been messaging me all morning asking, Do we have any start dates yet? Because I've I've got you know, I'm up for this role in this, that, and the other. And I just messaged and said, um, can I just call you later or, or get back to you? It's not a good time right now. Right? He messages me again. Right? And he's saying, well, look, I really, I really need to know whether I'm going to be working on this or not. You know, and I'm just like, dude, seriously, look, I'm, I'm just going to ignore it now. Right? And, and just, you know, I'm trying to get my head around it. The fucking asshole rings up and leaves me a voicemail cursing me out and saying I'm full of shit. I don't deserve any of the fucking success, you know, and I'm a fraud and all this fucking shit, right? Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm sitting there waiting on hearing if, you know, I'm going to be a fucking widow, basically. Right. You know, and I've got to go and hold my son for the first time. You know, and probably be the only thing he's got. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional about it now. It affected me no, that no, much. No, no, I mean that's and that's the thing suddenly, that happens on the show sometimes. It's all right. Yeah, and suddenly, I fucking hated what I was. You know, I hated the project. I hated the people associated with the project, and I was like, "This is not what I want in my life." And I just, it was just a, an emotional involvement. Where I was like, fuck this project, you know, and fuck all of this work I'm putting into this project because now it's stained by this asshole who's just completely made me hate my own work and what I've been putting into it. Well, also in the moment, in the moment, the project doesn't matter, you know, it's, it's, the guy didn't know, but at at the end of the day, you just don't fucking respond to shit like that. And it was the right. worst possible time to get it. So luckily, you know, Kate comes through, you know, she's pale as hell. You know, she's got blood bags tied up to her. She's like not moving anywhere from that hospital for a while. But, you know, it's, it's just a case of, you know, as soon as they came out and said, okay, yeah, we're moving her into recovery now. Uh, we're going to take you into see her in just a minute. And I just nearly broke down. It was a proper like, Jesus fucking Christ. I, I didn't feel like I was breathing for 25 minutes, you know, all my, te- all my chest is tight. I'm in a mixture between so over emotional and angry. 
Right? And that moment was the major trigger. That is what suddenly spurned everything. Because a week later, um, my option was due to come up on this project uh, with the producers and we were renegotiating a new way, getting into it. And I was that pissed off and kind of really didn't want to do the project anymore. I just turned to him and said, look, um, can you give me a timeline or a plan of action of, of what we're going to do with this movie? And, and you know, they, they played, I guess, you know, they do what producers do. They play a bit of hardball back and forth to get your commitment before anything. And I just said, no, I'm not resigning. And I, I purposely killed the project right there and then. I did not care if it would blacklist me in Hollywood. I did not care if it gave me a bad name. I don't care if I was buried to every single person. At that time, my fiance could not get out of bed. She'd come home, but she couldn't move. I had to stand fully clothed, holding her up in the shower just so she could get in the shower. I had to look after the child and change the child every day, had to do everything. And I'd fully accepted that was going to be what my life was going to be. Right. Right? Because that was the more important thing. And I was like, fuck fuck this. I don't want to be a person who, you know, puts all of this shit aside for a fucking movie. Right, right, right. You know? And, you know, I'd fully accepted that that was over with. But, you know, the project falling through, um, you know, the the sitting there waiting on just finding out if your partner was going to die and this fucking asshole calling me. And I know he's probably listening to this. And yes, you're a fucking asshole, you know, <laughs> in any way, shape or form for leaving the message that you did. Right. Right. So uh, it was a case of, right, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, get her back to to health and then i'm just going to go and get a job right while she is you know she's once she's recovered she's not going to be ready to go back to work yet and, and she's going to have to catch up on the parenting because she can't do it so i did the responsible thing i went and got a job in the worst fucking office job i've ever fucking had in my life and when you're creative being in an office environment oh <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i know that feeling <laughs> Now that is what tipped my depression over the scale. I was going to say that's a whole right. different, whole different level of yes, of various uh, different negative feelings. The nice people, but you know, some of them are nice people. But um, when you're a creative and your heart is in like the entertainment business and writing and, and all stuff like that, sitting in a sales office is fucking torture. Oh, fucking worst. So. I, ended up going to... I have to mention this. I've told myself multiple times that I would live, I would live under a bridge again before I would go back to a call center job. Yeah. I, wor- I worked in a call center for 10 years before I got into comedy. And after I got out of that job, the final time, and I do mean this to my dying day, I will never ever step foot in one of those jobs ever again. Like I will do literally anything else that I have to do to make money before I will ever put myself in an environment like that again. No, it, it's the worst environment, not even for a creative, for anybody, right? You're, you're filling a seat 
right? And I understand some people out there do it uh, and they maybe feel that it's the only option for them. It's not, all right? There, there is always something better to do than just be a number on a board. Okay? Some people some people like that, the office job or like the call center thing. But like, I don't see how they could, but there are some people that thrive in it. Some people that really do actually enjoy the the... I guess, I don't know, fast-paced monotony, I guess, is the best way to put it, where it's just a droning, same shit every time, but it moves fast at the same time. Like, it's such a weird energy, but there are some people that like it. Yeah, you know, and, and fair play to them. They're, they're a better person than I am if they can stick through that shit and not put a gun to their head. No, no, I, I would, I would pray for the Belko experiment every single day. If I would have went back into one of those jobs, it would just be like, dude, somebody get on that loudspeaker and say they're just going to start picking people off if we don't figure it out ourselves. Because I've got yeah. ten people on the list just waiting. Like, just fucking, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. These are the type of people who one day just crack. Yeah, and you know, end up picking up a gun and just taking people out in the street. I guarantee you. Um, but yeah, I was doing that, and I knew. Everything was just starting to come to the surface then. And I was like, I've never felt this way before. And especially when winter came in suddenly and it was like, I'm fucking angry all the time, you know, and I'm, I'm really irritable. That's the worst thing. And I feel like such a fucking failure. And all of these feelings came along and it was so weird it came to a point where, you know, it was like, I need to go and see a doctor now. I need to go and see a counselor. I need to go and see something. Something is going on and I don't know what it is because I, I felt like I could live with trauma. I could live with all these bad things because I was so used to bad things happening. You know, that for me, it was like, it's like Steve Buscemi and Corneo or whoever it is. It's, you know, it hurts. Yeah. It's not, something nice happens. You know, uh, you just don't think it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get all those trust issues that go with it. But now, real quick question, not not to get into spoiler alert ter- territory with the the movie that which is your therapy journey. But I have a question yeah. from a therapy standpoint. Did the thing with did you did your dad die in the winter or near the winter? No, he actually died in the summer. Okay. And did the relationship end in the winter? The relationship ended, no, it was only a month afterwards. So that ended in an August. So that was a summer as well. Uh, okay. Which is weird. I'm happy no, no, I was, I was curious about it because I've, I've heard sometimes with people that have seasonal depression or seasonal affective disorder, I've heard of it happening where it is linked to something traumatic that happened like either at the beginning of or during that season. So that when they enter that season, their body goes into a default, like bad place, I guess is the best way to put it, where it goes into like, you know, survival mode or whatever the case may be. So it was just, it was literally just a curiosity question. I think for me, it kicks in in October, right after my birthday, almost a week after. Okay. All right. All the way through Christmas. And when I did get counseling and, and we, did really delve into it and i didn't even tell you know my my fiance i was getting this counseling for a while um you know it's just something that i was doing 
so I've got to get through this myself and figure it out. I don't want no other influence. I need to know where this stems from. Um, and a, a lot of it, they said, you know, the, there is a kind of link there. I mean, I know that my mother and father separated when I was like one years old. And I didn't see my father on, on a majorly regular basis. I'd see him on my birthday and I'd see him at Christmas and a scattering of you know weekends throughout as I was growing up. Um, so I don't know if that played a major factor into it, but I know that the, the major buildup of a lot of stuff came from the initial meetings. And that is when I got introduced to antidepressants, which then became the worst period I have ever gone through in my life. Okay. One, antidepressants terrify me. I have seen friends and family members uh, who are on antidepressants and can never get off them. And for someone who had a major drug problem and doesn't want to go back to that, it's fucking terrifying because it's like, uh, this is just an addiction. Real quick, but I, I do want to bring this up because when this comes up in conversation when it comes to medication and stuff, um, it is something that I do want to bring up because I am somebody, I'm not anti-medication. I won't say that I'm anti-meds. I'm not anti-pharmaceuticals because I do think that there are certain situations, especially where pharmaceuticals do balance things properly and people do need them. But there's something to be said about what you just said. When it yeah. comes to certain types of pharmaceuticals, whether it's, you know, antidepressants, SSRIs, whatever you want to call them, there are certain situations where, unfortunately, when you do start them, you're just on them for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I know unless, people like that to this day. Yeah, unless, now you can come off of those things, but the come down from coming off of them is so difficult like that you basically have to have a spotter the whole time because yeah. coming off of an antidepressant or an SSRI, it, it does something to your brain chemistry when you're removing that stuff from your system that used to balance you out. And it's like the effect that it has is akin to withdrawing from like just heavy, heavy, heavy alcohol use yeah. And then trying to just drop it cold turkey. And the reason that I want to bring this up before we get too far into it is because uh, something recently happened with a family member of mine um, where they had a night that was just bad and they decided I'm going to take all of my antidepressants at one mm -hmm. time. And they did. And they took enough to kill two people like straight up. There's no there's no logical reason that they survived this episode. Um, but they did luckily. And once that happened, they didn't have a choice, but to not be on those anymore. So when they came out of it, the doctor was basically like, you're going to be in a rough fucking place for the next month, at least like it just is brain wise, you know, you're just, you're going to be in a real rough place. So when they got through that month or two, it was about right around a month to two months. And they balanced out finally. I've never seen them in a better place in my entire life. And yeah. I've, I've known them my whole life. Um, but I've never seen them in a better place now that they've, 
gotten through what is essentially a forced detox of this stuff and now they're themselves again but during the time there was a time when they absolutely did need them but again without that forced detox that happened i don't know if they ever would have been able to get off of them like it just it's such a hard thing to do well this this is where me and you have a very lot in common and I, i can cover this now when i was put on to the medication i have such a fear of antidepressant medication uh, because I see what it does to a lot of friends. And, you know, I myself have lost a family member who was taken off of them too fast uh, and ended up um, doing exact same thing, but didn't come out the other side of it like your family member did. Right. Um, And that is where my fear of medication came from. I was on these pills for eight months, eight months, and I got worse. I was more depressed from this medication and I went back and said, yes, we need to up your medication. I'm like, no, fuck this. No, no, I, I cannot do this. I am suffering mentally. I, I've got no like mental capacity. I can't write. I can't do anything. I'm, I'm struggling in this freaking job, you know, because I don't, my focus is not there. I'm tired all the time. And, you know, I'm more irritable on this medication. Now, and I, I want to apologize to a lot of people here that say, do not take this as any form of advice. I came off those tablets cold turkey. One day I said, I am not fucking taking these anymore. I am going to ride this out. Right. And I stopped. And yeah. that was it. It was like, I'm not doing it. I went through three weeks of some of the most horrendous symptoms I went through. And I knew it was the medication. I was there Mm -hmm. like, I can get through this. I know this is just the medication that is making me feel this bad. And I was right. No, you're not wrong at all. And that's, and to speak on what you said, yes, obviously if you are on medication, here's, here's what I will say, because neither one of us are doctors, but as far as quitting SSRIs or antidepressants, cold Turkey, um 99.9 percent of the time fucking don't like don't do that but (laughs) but i will say this if you are having a similar situation to what yours was where you were on it you said for what eight months and it not only was not getting better it was getting worse at that point you have to advocate for yourself and go to your doctor and say this medication is not working it's not doing what it's supposed to do it's making it worse we need to either wean me off of this or we need to try a different medication because there are definitely situations where if you're there out there taking Lexapro or if you're taking Wellbutrin or if you're taking Prozac or if you're taking fucking Zoloft or whatever it is that you happen to be on, sometimes that medication is not the one that you're supposed to be on. And your brain is telling you that because it's like yeah. after, after the first month or two, if your brain is like, uh, no, I hate this, and I'm going to make all of these symptoms a lot fucking worse until you get me off of this. You do definitely have to advocate for yourself sometimes with doctors and tell them, like, this ain't the one. We can try another one if we need to, but this ain't the one, you know? No, de- definitely. I mean, I had a person, uh, I did mention it to somebody who, who is on antidepressants, and that they were just like, how did you get off him? I was like, I came up cold turkey, but do not do this. You know, do not do it. I, I don't know what your evaluation is. I don't know if you can take it. 
you know but seriously most of most of the time people kill themselves when they do that and like it's and i'm not even remotely saying that like tongue-in-cheek at all most of the time when somebody goes cold turkey off of an antidepressant or an ssri the ending to that is usually them killing themselves and it's and it's because of the withdrawals that you're talking about that you went through they're horrific yeah i mean you you've seriously got to have this incredibly positive thing to tell you you can get through it right as a goal and that's how i did it okay so i was incredibly fortunate because i'd kept in touch with a lot of the people that i'd met in hollywood and i have one friend and i will say his name uh his name is jay oliva i met him at warner animation uh he's a director he did a lot of the dc uh animated movies like batman and justice league stuff like that oh nice yeah and uh, it was we had a kind of chance meeting and we got talking over the phone and he read some of my work and really liked it and um he he came to me one day and said uh i want to do a a, a superhero themed movie uh would you be interested in writing it and i was like yeah sure you know why not you know just sit at the kitchen table and write it on my laptop and, and that's what i did and that kind of really gave me the strength to get off the, the medication. He came over to the UK. I was working with Zack Snyder on uh, Justice League before fucking Whedon took over. Um, okay. So <laughs> I, I had these two weeks where I wasn't doing any rewrites on this script we were having fun doing together. And I was like, I need to write something now to do with mental health and i wrote a script called deeper than six feet and after i'd written it and it took me eight days to write this first draft of the script and i sat there after i finished it and i was like this is very different from anything i've ever written and i showed it to a producer friend of mine and he was like well this is really really strong what are you planning to do and i said I feel I'm ready to come back to LA and see if I can get a new twist because I feel there's something about it. And sure enough, I came up to LA and I started showing that script around to the people I knew. And, you know, here we are today, you know, we're, we're putting hopefully what's going to be the final pieces together and I'm actually going to go and direct this movie. Um, but that was a major therapy piece because there is so much in that. I mean, the main character is dealing with trauma based on a a traumatic event, you know, and and it's kind of a mystery that unravels in a way. And I love the title, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Deeper than Deeper than Six Feet is a great title because I immediately know where it's going, but not in a, not in a like specific fashion. But I do know the direction of that title, which is fantastic. It's a it's a great title. Yeah, it it was a very it was it's probably one of the easiest scripts to to write um, because I was in a place where I was freshly off this medication, and I was starting to feel my my creativity came back like you would not believe. It was it was a proper phoenix from the flames. You know, I'm back. I've got my energy. I've I've got this creative will back. You know, and 
I've got to say, while going through what was this really difficult period, I had these amazing people uh, in Hollywood, you know, directors, um, actors, producers, who had my back and they were throwing me work, they were throwing me projects and, and opening doors for me, really to pull me back up. And I needed that period with that initial project where I, I just, you know, whether people can say I kicked my toys out of the pram or not, it was something I needed to do because my I could not have sat in a director's chair in that condition of where I was. I had a lot of shit to get over and a lot of maturing to do. So I needed that kind of semi-failure to become more confident and to really grow um, back into this business the right way. Right. Um, it's, you know, it, it was, it was a victory that felt like such a loss at the time. Sure. But coming around to it now, and even when the pandemic hit, when the pandemic hit, I saw all of these people, especially in the industry, you know, you could swear these people were about to jump out of a window. Right? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, they're all like, our industry's dead. You know, oh, we're we're all finished. We're, we're never, you know, we're never recovering. We're all going to die. And I'm just there like, you don't realize this time you've got now, you're all at home. You know, yeah. I can't do anything. Right. I mean, yeah, I, fucking create. Yeah. I mean, I started the Partywood podcast for one, you know, and the, so, and that just, was a case of me and Steve, my co-host, were bored and we couldn't get together and chat shit about movies. And he knows fuck all about movies. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've been like, on the show. All right. <laughs> but that's also what happened with our that's what happened with our horror podcast too. It was a product of the pandemic, yeah. you know. But it was like I've got this urge to be creative and I was holding I was going to start that movie again, that initial movie. And we were holding Zoom meetings uh, throughout 2020 and 2021 with cast from the UK and US who were all interested in doing this movie. We had no budget. We were just like, we're going to scrimp and scrape to try and get this movie made, even if we've got to do it on no budget. But let's just see how far we can get. And that was what it was. Let's see how far we can get. And everyone was all on board. Like, let's do it. Let's do this thing. And we actually managed to go and shoot some stuff when the kind of restrictions were lifted. Uh, we managed to go and shoot some scenes. And I brought a lot of friends of mine who weren't even actors, but they were so enthusiastic. And it turned out they were so good. Uh, so, and it was such a, um, such a positive experience. I felt, you know, this might actually get this movie made and made the way I want to make it. You know, and yeah, it's a, it's a passion project. And, you know, we went out and shot these scenes and they were really great. And last year was probably the most challenging year. We were out of the pandemic. Um, the first part of it was in September. Was it September? August to September. I forget the dates. Um, my mother died. And it was another out of the blue moment. Um, my older sister, she called me. And as soon as the phone rang, I knew what it was. It was so weird. Uh, I was in my living room fitting vinyl flooring 
which is another reason why I hate vinyl flooring to this day. Um, that's an that's an interesting connection, but it makes sense <laughs> because I'm there swearing like fuck because I think this one panel will not fit in place. So I'm using swear words I don't think I've ever I don't think even exist, but they do now. Um, and my phone rings, and then I get a message on it. This message: "Call me when you can." And I knew, I just knew. It's like I know what this call is, and it feels like I've been bracing for this forever. So sure enough, um, I call her up and she tells me my mum had died that morning. And it was this utterly bizarre feeling, you know, just like, boof. And then I, I refused to, like, take it seriously. I was like, this, you know, am I really hearing it? You know, I can't process this because... It took so long to get over the fact that, you know, my father had passed. Right. And this hits out of the blue. And uh, one thing I've got to say about my mother is, you know, she saw so much potential in me. She may have been the only person who really saw a lot of potential in me growing up. She knew, you know, I had this creative spark and she really fueled and encouraged it. And I, I spent that entire night. I didn't speak to anyone for a couple of days. So not a lot of people knew. Um, and then, you know, you, you do the obligatory Facebook post. Right. You know, that your parents passed away and, you know, then everyone's just you know, seeing it. But next thing what, you know, you got a thousand comments from people that you haven't talked to in fucking eight, nine years, you know. It's yeah. just like, sorry for your loss. Sorry for your loss. And it's just like, oh, fucking now you see this post. Like, yeah. But, you know, what's really important is the people who call you. Yeah. Or at least try and call you. Right. I had people from LA called me straight away as soon as they found out. You know, Jay was one of them. Uh, Bill Daly, my friend and producer, he was the um, Warner Brothers senior vice president. He's one of my closest friends. Uh, he calls me that night. And the worst thing is, the very next day, we're supposed to do Pottywood with uh, an actor friend called Ralph Brown. If you've seen Wayne's World 2, you'll know Del Preston. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Aaron. Yeah. Um, and we're due to talk that night. And I just say to him, can I call you in the morning? I just said, I said, can I call you in the morning? Uh, I've just got a family issue at the moment. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Give me a call tomorrow. And uh, he's the first person I spoke to about it. Uh, I called up next day and I said, I want to apologize. I didn't get to call you last night. Uh, my mother passed away. That's the first time I said it. Yeah, right? that's, that's, a, that's a whole new feeling when the words come out of your face for the first time. Yeah. And Ralph Brown, God bless that guy, stayed on the phone with me for an hour and a half and we were just talking about, you know, life and parenthood and everything. And he's an amazing, genuine guy. He really is. Um, and he really helped me kind of put it into perspective because I was lost. I, sure. I was just like, how the fuck do I process this? Yeah. And, and, you know, my mother's funeral came along and I was, I was in such shock on that day and still didn't know how to process it, you know? Um, and then the, the weirdest thing that happened is I find out it was three days later after the funeral one of my friends in Pasadena died. 
uh, and his name is Ryan Sakoda, and he was an uh, American wrestler from WWE who I'd become really good friends with. What was and his name? Ryan Sakoda. And what around what time was this? Like what year? Uh, he was in WWE from uh, well, two thousand three, two thousand and four. If you know WWE, um, they had a wrestler called Tajiri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yoshihiro Tajiri. Yoshiro Tajiri, and he had two men, which was Akio, who became Jimmy Wang Yang, and the other one was Ryan Sakoda. Oh fuck! Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. So he was in it for a while, and uh, he was one of the wrestlers involved in the concussion lawsuit. And uh, you know, he had some. Uh, he had some kind of brain damage from it, and I could see him getting worse when I used to meet up with him in Pasadena. And we don't know how he died, but I was supposed to meet him in Pasadena, and I didn't get a chance to on the last time I was there. I said, I promise, you know, we'll get together the next time, and then he, he died. And we found, all found out about it like three or four weeks later after he died. Wow. You know, so it was, it, was, it was very kind of private. I don't know if his family kept out of it or what. Um, but you know, I did go to LA and I found his grave and I actually did get to go and hang out with him this year at his graveside. Um, uh, so that was hard and I'd felt such guilt over it because it was like, shit, you know, I was supposed to get this person. And then just before Christmas, another close friend of mine from here uh, by the name of Steve Tanswell died in like horrible circumstances. Um, and that hit me really over, just over the edge. And I, I will never watch Spider-Man No Way Home again because I went to the cinemas to watch that and walked out and found out that news. Oh, <laughs> shit. So, yeah, so it's, it's, like, atta- so it's attached to that one now. Yeah, it's, it's horrible when that happens. And, you know, you can never watch a movie again because you've just got this, like, shadowed memory on it. Yeah, you're like, um, well, now I don't like this movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and my friend Steve was in one of the roles of the movie that was, you know, the original movie that we were all shooting around that time. And my enthusiasm for that project died because, you know, he was there on the Zoom rehearsals for it. We all couldn't wait to see him do that role. And then it was like, I cannot continue with this project. So, So I was getting through the seasonal depression. I know that's what we're supposed to be talking about, but every winter since the initial, you know, diagnosis that I got, right. um, I knew that I had to keep myself active over the November, December, January, and February. I needed to work on projects and lighthearted ones. So my kind of coping mechanism was always working and writing comedy scripts or comedy shows, or working on the Pottywood podcast and keeping things lighthearted. And that is how I combat seasonal affective disorder. And it still gets through. Well, sure. It's, it's, it's a fucking horrible. And I know there's people out there who may feel they've got it and, and you know, go and talk to your doctor about it, you know, uh, and one, find where the root of that problem is, you know, wh- where it stems from. And, you know, there's so much of they say, oh, you can either take the medication, which I will never do. I will never go on medication ever again. 
yeah once you've had a bad experience with it like that that kind of is the thing that turns you the other way which again i there's zero judgment on my end for either direction because again for some people it works for some people it absolutely does not i'm one of the people that it does not work for at all but i live with somebody who it works great for you know and i'm one of the i just happen to be one of the people that's kind of like you i'll never go on yeah. again ever uh, the thing that people really have to admit to themselves before anything else is that it is okay to not be okay all right yeah that's such like that's such an office inspirational quote poster quote but it's so (laughs) accurate like there's a few of them there's a few of them that like actually are like it's oh that one actually fucking fits and then you know then there's some that's like if you like rainbows you got to experience a little rain and it's just like shut up like you know like, but, <laughs> fuck yourself. right yeah it's just like but the but it's okay to not be okay it's it's accurate like it's a hundred percent accurate and, and you know what? It, it's we we understand the reasons why you know, people do not come out about mental illness you know people will come out about absolutely anything nowadays but they will not admit they've got a problem sometimes they won't admit it to their families because they don't want to be seen as you know that one member of the family with the problems fuck you every single one of your family has a problem well especially men like men it's not it's frowned upon like by society if you tell people that you got that you're that you're having depression or if you have a mental illness like you're a pussy that's the way that society will tell you man like you're weak you know things like that which is such bullshit. Like it's obviously complete horseshit, but it's the way that society has devolved really yeah. to, oh, to put that burden on people. Yeah. We are in a major devolution of right, becoming human beings. Right. And you can look at Facebook for that. We're in a bit of a slump. I will agree. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk right here. One about, two figures of, of kind of mental illness at the moment and the way they've been portrayed. Uh, one, let's talk about Anne Hesch. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, Anne Hesch, I mean, I've never seen before, or maybe not to this extent, Anne Hesch, poor soul, and it's no way for someone to go. And, you know, Anne Hesch, very documented, had mental health issues before it was the in thing okay she was very open about him from day one she was persecuted by the media every comedy show you can think of right there was an Anne Hesh joke around somewhere and when she was involved in this accident i had never seen such vitriol put out about Anne Hesh from certain people immediate like, like and it was so what? quick what kind of a cunt are you to go online? You've never met this woman. Who the fuck asks your opinion on anything? Right. Right. This person has just gone through, well, is just gone through something that is unimaginable. Right. Has gone through decades of emotional torture. And we're not just talking a relationship with Ellen. Right, we are, we are talking, you know, she had a lot of shit growing up. She getting into this business and being persecuted the way she was, right? And then to have shit like that put on social media by a fucking nobody who doesn't know her, doesn't know the family, 
but puts shit out on the fucking internet that her family could come across. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's it's yeah. way beyond disgusting. And I I never normally post anything negative on Facebook. You, you've seen my Facebook posts are over always really stupid stuff or positive stuff. I I, I don't want to be someone contributing to the fucking negativity out there. Yeah, you don't jump in the mud too much. You're not no. you're not one of those you're not one of those types. No, but if you can honestly say if something triggered me, that fucking triggered me. I could tell. Was, yeah. <laughs> I saw what you posted. I could tell. I was like, ooh, Andrew's pissed. <laughs> yeah, because one, all right, I, I've been connected to Anne through Facebook for quite a while. I was hoping to get her on Partywood at some point, you know, right. and you know, I was on holiday when that news came out. You know, and then there is someone out there and i'm not going to say names um who posted the video of her scrambling to get out of the like body bag and oh yeah yeah. fucking conspiracy i don't think she's dead you know and fuck that shit dude i hate when people do that type of stuff it's like you know what if you've got enough of a fucking space in your life to waste on shit like that right what does that say about you right? yeah you know it's kind of it's kind of interesting because this is something my mom has always told me my mom has always told me this quote and it's kind of a thing to live by and what she said is your true judge of character is what you do when nobody else is watching yeah it's true. and it's the truth because if nobody else is watching you're not doing it for them you're doing it for you you know yeah and if you're I mean, a piece of shit by yourself you're a piece of shit like you know I mean, what is the problem with just respecting that there's a fucking human being with a family going through the worst kind of shit and i hearken it kind of fucking back to me sitting in that fucking hallway about to go through the worst shit ever and someone's just posting shit right yeah some fucking nothing is blowing up your phone yeah. While you're going through the shit that you're going through. The, the sh- if you're on the internet, be fucking responsible for the shit that you say. Because too many people are so comfortable with the fact that they're not going to get punched in the fucking face for shit that they say. Oh, yeah. That's that's a real thing, man. That's a very yeah. real thing, especially because I work in comedy. That's a real, very, very real thing where people get real mouthy. And these are people that have never taken a punch before. And they think exactly. that they can say something without somebody seeing them out in the world like you have to be responsible for what you say like you can you can totally wear the cross of free speech if you want to i'm all for that but you have to be responsible for the consequences that that free speech elicits whether it's good or bad like whether you're getting praise or whether you're getting somebody who is very pissed off about what you said like you got to be responsible for both of those sides if you're going to wear that cross you know yeah and and now let's look at the flip side okay and this is something very relevant for right here and now yeah how fucking good does it feel for brendan frazier right now that's incredible i just posted something about that on facebook yeah and it's like it's such a cool thing to see so for anybody that doesn't know kind of the the too long didn't read version of Brendan Fraser's history in Hollywood, 
most people know him from like Encino Man and fucking Airheads and like you know he was the dude that kind of had like you know he was kind of chiseled kind of ripped you know he was kind of like that 90s hot dude but kind of dumb like cast he was cast in that part a lot and then he hit the mummy and he got big with the mummy and like he was Tarzan and George of the Jungle you know it's like he's got these things he had all these parts that people knew him from and he never really got the chance to really show his chops as an actor because he was typecast but also he was assaulted in Hollywood no oh, yeah you know and i don't think people understand that near the end of Brendan Fraser's big push in Hollywood um he was assaulted by i don't remember whether it was a producer or a director or whatever it was but it was somebody that was much higher than him yeah and it caused a breakdown like he straight up he straight up vanished like he had a breakdown he vanished he came back and when he came back like yeah he was bigger his, his fucking hair was thinning like he was he aged but he also went through a fucking nightmare of mental illness because oh, of yeah. his trauma you know and to see people shit on him and everything because he looked the way that he did when he was, you know, because he wasn't rocking a fucking eight pack anymore and stuff like that. And then to see him come out with this movie and get like, get the comeback that he deserves, you know, six minute. Was it six minutes? Six minutes, six standing minutes standing ovation, ovation at yeah. Venice as he was just trying to exit. He was just trying to leave yeah. the theater and they were like, no, you don't get, you don't get to leave without this. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I saw that today. Right. And it filled me with so much fucking hope, right? To see that someone who has gone through that much fucking trauma of another guy fucking trying to fit his fucking hand up your ass, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, and and he lost so much, he was depressed. I think he ended up um, you know, his relationship fell apart and he mm -hmm. was in a, a bad spot. You know, and it was out of the public eye. He was suffering this on his own. Yeah, he did you it know. all by he did it behind the cameras. There was no, you know, people weren't taking a picture of it and like stuff like that. He did this behind closed doors. Yeah, but I see him on this video today, genuinely weeping, crying. And it's like, you know what? Every single person that you know who has a mental illness and going through a bad fucking time you can make with that much fucking joy just once in their life yeah right? by understanding what they've gone through instead of just giving them the fucking label or posting shit on the internet about them right and like sometimes it just is a thing where you especially when it comes to the entertainment industry when it comes to the entertainment industry whether it's comedy whether it's filmmaking whether it's music whether it's broadway whatever it is sometimes after somebody has gone through some shit like when somebody has gone through a trauma or just an intense experience in their life whatever the case may be sometimes all it takes is for somebody to reach their hand out and give them the opportunity to do what they love again you know yeah and and that's what aronofsky did with him like and i will tell you this right now i am not the biggest aronofsky fan like as far as his movies go I'm excited because I think this movie is perfect for Aronofsky, you know? Yeah. 
But the fact that he reached out a hand to Brendan Fraser and says, this movie is going to be your baby. You know, it's going to be on your on your terms, on your shoulders, on everything like this is your this is yours. You know, let's do this. The fact that he did that, um, I think, is going to be a both career and life altering thing for Brendan Fraser. And also the, the exposure that this whole situation is getting, I think, with a little bit of hope in my heart, is going to make a shift in Hollywood. On, on the mental illness support issue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. not so shunning, no longer shunning artists when they've gone through, you know, a mental illness or a trauma. Yeah. Uh, this is a good point that I actually brought up. Now, do you think Robin Williams would still be alive today if he could have been opened up about what he was suffering through and not feeling he was going to be labeled or vindicated for it? It's one of the <laughs> biggest tragedies. Here's the interesting thing about Robin. Um, Robin, I followed Robin's career for years. I was a huge fan and still am, of course. But when I heard that he died, um, funny enough, I was at a wrestling event. I was at a WWE raw taping and it was, we've all been there. there. Uh, so I was at raw. It was a huge show too. It was a fucking major show. It was, if I remember correctly, it was like Hulk Hogan's birthday show or something like that. And like the whole NWO was there. Like it was, it was like a big fucking show and it was filmed in Portland, Oregon. And I remember this specifically because we were, I was there with one of my friends who had never been to a live WWE show. And we ended up getting like second row tickets. So I told him, I was like, yo, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be this show. It's like a big show, blah, blah, blah. And we were having the greatest fucking time. And then I get a text that says, Hey, did you hear about Robin Williams? And then I texted back. I said, he killed himself, didn't he? And they texted back and said, well, I was just going to tell you that he died, but yeah, he committed suicide. And I was like, fuck, that's not a surprise, but it like, it crushed me, you know? And the reason it wasn't a surprise is because I think Robin Williams, particularly, I think that his mental illness that he was suffering through, I think that he suffered in silence on purpose. Hmm. And I don't think it was because he was worried about being labeled as anything. I think it's because he cared too much about the burden that he felt like it would put on his fans. Yeah. You know, because he was one of those people, and this is also from people that I I know in comedy that know him, that he always cared about the feelings of other people prior to his own. Meaning that, like, he didn't care what people thought about him as long as what he was doing was giving somebody else joy. Yeah. You know? You know what? I understand that. Because that that is something that I am also guilty of. I have always hidden when I've had, well, what they basically say is a wobble or I'm having a bad time. My coping mechanism on a lot of that is making sure everyone else is okay. Right. And during the pandemic, I had people whose 
lives were falling apart and their hearts were breaking. And I'm there just trying to make them laugh and see, you know, you know, just something humorous or just doing something stupid. And I remember a friend of mine came back to me and said, you're always there for everyone, but I'm worried about you. So I'm worried about who is there for you. And I just want you to know that I am there. And that is an actress friend of mine, Becca Marks, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, me and her doing all kinds of stupid shit. <laughs> the last couple yep. of years whenever Absolutely. we managed to get together yep. and um you know she she is like a twin sister to me um we, we know each other so well and we've gotten each other through a lot when i was going through all of that bad shit she was always there and she has heard me at my worst yeah and that's the one person i've um oh the one friend i can always count on then there are many others but she has always been the one who, she just instinctively knows when I'm down and she'll send me a message. It's weird. Um, sometimes they know <laughs> it's, it's a real thing, know. but I mean, let's look the, the entertainment business, right? The Hollywood business. Let's talk here about, uh, you know, the, the Paracelsus recovery analysis. Yeah. Yeah. 41 out of 60 people who won Best Actor or Best Actress since 1992 have mental health issues that was revealed in this analysis. And here's the thing, though. That's only the ones that we know about. That's only the ones. Yeah, that's only the ones that were made available to be known. Exactly. Which means that number is much higher. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. There is no support system in place. You know, I know people yearn for fame. I see it, right? I see all of these young actors and actresses who they need to showcase their progression by hashtag actors life and all shit like that. They crave it as a solution for whatever fears they're going through, whatever pains they're going through, whatever loneliness they're feeling, whatever it is. But the realistic thing is, Fame needs a health warning, right? All these people on Instagram, TikTok, all of these people that, you know, kind of crave this entry into Hollywood, they they might not mentally be prepared for what comes with it, right? Yeah, they crave what they're not, what they crave what they don't know. They crave, yeah. they crave the, they crave what they've created in their head. Yeah. Of what fame is. The reality is different. Much. Like, you have to be prepared for the 11 months of lows that surround the one month of a high. Right? And that is the truth. You are going, you think you're going to be living the Meryl Streep fucking lifestyle. I would love to know Meryl Streep's mental condition to go as far as she's gone. Right. Oh man, she, especially with the projects that she's done, you know? Yeah. Like, because I think Meryl Streep is one of those ones, especially like with her pedigree. She doesn't have to take a project that she doesn't want to do, you know? Yeah. Look, all of these actors and actresses have fucking psychiatrists on speed dial for a reason. Right. Right. Because you're hot and then you're not. And look at, like, as an example, and I'm not saying that, you know, this actress needs therapy or shit like that. You can be Uma Thurman in Kill Bill, and then you can be Uma Thurman in, what is it, um, 
parenthood, adulthood, that movie that made like eighty dollars at the right. box office. Right? You and just you just don't want to be Uma Thurman in the house that Jack built. You don't want to be yeah. that Uma Thurman, <laughs> right? Uh, and yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, it, it's great having that progression and having you know that moment. Whether it's fifteen minutes, whether it's twenty five minutes, you know. But when you get there, and once you've had that moment, it suddenly gets so empty. And it feels yeah. so fraudulent and it is over like that. And you have to have that mental stability and that comfort zone level to land on. Because yeah, you, you have to know how to land on your feet because yeah. with a major high comes a drop off, no matter what. And it's fucking horrible. Right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not mean you have had it in the in the different kind of fields, you know, but there's these people out there you know, totally in love with this image that they've got in their head. And, and narcissism is one of the kind of biggest mental illnesses there probably is, you know, that belief, you know, that you're, you're going to be paramount. You're going to be the best. Everyone has been the best at one point. Some of them to just one movie, you know, some of them for a run of movies, it's never consistent. And I try and talk to so many actors and actresses because I genuinely care about people. I really do. And actors and actresses especially, because they're incredibly talented. But, you know, I've seen people who make sandwiches talented. <laughs> you know, once the sandwich is over, you've just got to go make something else. You know, but if you do not have that comfort at home in your everyday life, if you are getting in this business to escape, the, the harsh reality of your life, that come down is going to be so fucking hard, right? Much, much harder. You have to be happy away from the business to really find happiness within that business, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, social media, it's the fucking worst place for mental health issues, right? Because they're there documented forever for everyone to see, right? And everyone is guilty of public, go, go back through your Facebook memories at 10 years ago and see some shit that you've put that you wish you hadn't put, <laughs> right? And, you know, people will find them. You know, I, I choose not to look at the Facebook feed anymore. So if all of you people out there who uh, are angry at me because I haven't liked your baby pictures or your anniversary pictures, it's not that I don't give a shit. It's that I can't look through the Facebook feed at the people just sprouting shit. It's like when the, the presidential shit was going on with Biden and Trump and all that shit. Like, I can't read this shit. Oh, that was the worst. Yeah. It's like, tell you what, I did this thing once that really pissed someone off and I finally got blocked by someone. And I thought that was a real achievement because no one ever blocked me before where um, they put their opinion on a status of mine that didn't call for their opinion. I wasn't asking for anyone's opinion, but they had a totally opposite um, take on what I was putting out. Right, but overbearingly opposite. <laughs> so 
I thought, you know what? There's only one way to combat this kind of shit because I didn't ask for this opinion. So I created an invoice and wrote your opinion on it and zero dollars as the amount <laughs> and sent it to him. And he blocked me. And it was beautiful. You should have done it for two cents. <laughs> no, it wasn't even worth two cents. It's worth or a, pe- a penny for your thoughts. but you know in going back to what i was saying you know about when my career started out you know i've been there you know i had it thrust on me well before i was mentally or even professionally ready for it i can look back now and say i'm glad that that project didn't materialize when it did you know because it gave me the time from that to organize my life find this real safe grounding work out my issues and develop this comfort zone stable to be able to build my way back in, you know, and, and, and be prepared for it. I can now honestly say, you know, I've, I've had so many projects, some of them, when they stall, you know, you can go, the momentum on a project can go full tilt, you know, and you can be doing shitloads of stuff for like four months since like, oh shit, this film's going to go ahead. And then suddenly you hit a roadblock and then you're not working on it for a bit because you're trying to regain momentum and it can take months. Right? The pandemic was a pure example. I was out in LA just before the pandemic hit out there to get this deeper than six feet movie up and running. And we were like, shit, yeah, we're going to go and make this in August. You know, we can get this done, shoot it through the fall. I get back suddenly the entire world's locked down. No, I am seeing everybody losing their shit. You know, everybody, you know, they're, they're practically putting on the board saying the end of the world is nigh and, you know, getting ready to jump off a bridge and shit like that. And I'm there like, I've got my safe ground here, you know, and I know that this is going to be temporary. But it's, it's going to get back in some form or another. And it's just, you know, be kind of mentally safe where you are now. And and that's the real point of it. Yeah. You were willing to wait it out. Yeah. But a lot of people are so obsessed with the momentum and, and they want to be stars tomorrow, you know, and they want to be, they want to, they're already there writing their fucking Oscar speech, you know? Yeah. And it's like, you know, when it comes to, especially like talking about the pandemic, because there were certain filmmakers that I think used the pandemic in similar ways that you did, Um, you know, where they just jumped into the writing aspect of it. And there's also other filmmakers that used the pandemic to make films that were within that universe, you know, and they did it with the means that they were able to do like Rob Savage is a perfect example. Um, He's the one that he's actually a UK director. And he did the yeah. movie Host, which is 60 minutes. It's all filmed through Zoom screens, and it's a horror movie. I and have heard f- of this. Yeah. It's a fucking dope horror movie. But it's like, again, it's it's a product of the pandemic. And I don't think that that movie would have gotten made had we not been going through what we were going through. <clears throat> because he was forced to do it in a way that was able to be done during lockdowns you know, and ended up being brilliant. Um, But again, it was kind of 
one of those things where it's like, do you just stop creating, whether it be writing or a full movie or whatever? Do you just stop or do you still use it to maybe fall back in love with making film, you know, or making art, oh, yeah. you know? I mean, I, I look at it now that if someone would have told me that, um, you know, just as the pandemic was starting, you know, I was going to be hosting a podcast. That is something that had never appealed to me. You know, that was more a Steve idea. And he was like, you know, let's, let's just do it. Cause when else are we going to talk about movies? He's like, we don't talk about movies anyway, cause you never see any. <laughs> so I used it to my advantage of getting him to actually watch movies. It is you funny know. because he just, he has not seen many movies at all. He, he for sure has not seen many movies. <laughs> He's seen terrible movies, but he hasn't seen Essential. It's like, I would say, how the hell can you have seen Mortal Kombat Annihilation, but had never seen Taxi Driver? You know, it's it's unfathomable. That, this that is, is a such a hilarious, that is such a hilarious comparison, though, just because those movies are so far on the opposite spectrums of quality. Like, I know, but I, I absolutely love the guy. And, you know, I... I he's been a friend he actually came to audition for me on that original project oh, and nice. uh, we just became friends in the same way that becca she flew over from germany to come and audition for this project and they became my two closest friends and uh, i try and involve them in everything that i do to this day but um you know the the, the podcast thing was a surprise but you know I, I was able to sit back on deeper than six feet and really look at it and say okay what is it I really want to say with this movie? I've got a strong script, but I know there's something else. And I reworked the third act. Um, and I was talking with the producers and I said, look, I've got this time. Nothing's happening at the moment. Let me just go back and work on this and present it. And I came back with something that just completed this script. Fuck yeah. This is it. And from there, you know, um, uh, a really good friend and mentor of mine is Richard Mirish. And, you know, this guy produced the matrix, you know, he's, he produced black mass. He's just produced Godzilla versus Kong. And he was like, yeah, I'll come on and help produce on this to help you get going. And Fuck like, yeah. You know, and um, one of my favorite met... directors did Godzilla versus Kong. Oh, Adam. Yeah. yeah. Adam, Adam Weingard. Uh, yeah. He's, well, he's legitimately one of my favorite directors. It's a lovely guy really is um when i went to see richard at warner Bros. they were doing um the sound mix on godzilla versus kong so i got to come in and see them doing the sound mix on it and adam was there and i got introduced to him and i'm so there like so, i so want to fucking talk to you about your next you know oh yeah you, you know it's kind of funny back over on the horror cast when we talk about movies that kind of like stick in our head your next is one of them for sure and we also constantly bring up how good his variation of the blair witch was yeah because like it was done that. yeah it was a cool take on it and it was full found it was fully found footage so either you're into found footage or you're not but oh yeah his twist on it was really cool and also the way that he marketed it was fucking brilliant he called it the woods for like i think it was <laughs> yeah. up until the week before it was released and then everybody was like oh fuck me it's a blair witch movie <laughs> it was yeah just like, gotcha <laughs> It's it's scary the amount of filmmaking talent that guy has, you know, on every movie he's done so far. 
And um, the fact that he said that he wanted to do a face off reboot or sequel or whatever was like, oh shit. Like, if there's yeah. anybody that I would want to do that movie, it would be him. <laughs> I mean, this guy has landed the Thundercats movie, and yeah. I'm just so fucking excited about it. I saw I mean, that. Because, um, you know, that, that's just an amazing... I'm hoping Richard ends up on that movie as well as a producer. That would be so cool. Yeah, so we're, such... we're all we're all big Weingart fans. So when yeah. I saw him, he, the, he was doing Thundercats. I was like, that, fuck yeah. Like, he, that's going to be a good one. <laughs> yeah. Come on, come on, get get Dave Batista as Panthro. He's the only guy you can really pull that off. Oh, <laughs> dude, I didn't even think about that. You're right. <laughs> yeah, get him. If you got Vin Diesel, I'd be so disappointed. I bet, I bet you Batista would be down for that shit too. Oh, damn right. You, you know he's a secret Thundercats fan. You know, I I wouldn't even be surprised if he probably has like that. Where's that on his sleeve? He probably is. He's probably a big time <laughs> Thundercats fan. <laughs> he probably is, but um, you know it's. If anything, I want people to kind of take away from today. You know, it's there is always coping mechanisms. And I know we kind of came into this really to talk about seasonal affective disorder. And I know I, I have touched on it. No, we, we came into this to talk about everything. So no, I was the, fucking covered see, everything. I was going to say seasonal <laughs> affective disorder was just one of the pieces in the puzzle. That's. Uh, yeah we and that's yeah. kind of what these episodes do and kind of the reason that we decided to do the show is because you can start a conversation about one sort of mental illness and then the next thing you know you're deep in the woods and you're talking about all sorts of stuff and that's good because if people are listening to the show we want them to hear experiences from people that have gone through these things and have come out the other side so whether it's seasonal affective disorder or depression or body dysmorphia or sexual assault or fucking bullying or fucking eating disorders or whatever like it, whatever it may be um i want all of it you know that's what yeah. i want people to hear like i want people to hear that yeah you can go through shit like people do and there is recovery from those things like you don't have to have them run your life, you know, and whether it's coping mechanism that we always get into at the end of the show, we always talk about coping mechanisms. So it's good that you're uh, bringing that up, you know? Yeah. Uh, there, there is always a way and it is always linked to one. You, you've got to have the belief that you can get through it. Right. And it's, it's all right for that belief to be really weak. Right. Yeah, there it's it's so hard. It's people. hard. It's hard sometimes. Yeah, there's so many people who will come up with that. You know, I don't feel I've got anything to live for, and it's like, okay, listen, there, there is always something to live for, right? And, and maybe you've just not discovered it yet, and maybe you've just got to, you know, clear that headspace and and focus on what you want to be. You know, I, I look at my thing. All right, there, there's so many people who have going to say, oh, you know, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to, you know, get the career I want. I'm never going to be get the position I want. And I've said the same thing. You know, I, I was told very, very early on when I motioned that, you know what, I actually want to be a scriptwriter and, you know, I want to get involved in making movies. I got told by somebody who, you know, was supposed to be the most supportive person you could think of right 
right? The one person who no matter what is supposed to, you know, give you support. For sure. Told me it's a fucking pipe dream. Right. And they were wrong. Right. You know, because, you know, I went and did it. It doesn't matter what anyone fucking says to you. If you want to do something, you can do it. Because at the end of the day, look at the people who are going to talk shit to you or going to tell you that you can't do it. Are they paying your fucking bills? If not, then tell them to shut the fuck up and just get on with it. Right. Just are they paying your bills? Are they standing in your shoes? Are they yeah. experiencing your experiences? Like, no, they're not. They're no matter what, they're from the outside looking in, you know? Yeah. I mean, for, for people who may feel that they're going through something like seasonal affective disorder or going through this real bad depression, especially when it gets darker or colder or, and, you know, there's not enough sunshine and right. it's all fucking bleak and you've got rising energy prices and you're worrying, how the fuck am I going to survive? The, there's always a way. You've just got to have a focus, right? And right. you've got to act against how your mind is telling you and for me as i said it's always writing comedy i don't feel like writing comedy but writing comedy is something that really fights against it um, right. when i was writing that project for that director i mentioned earlier on you know i wrote over christmas week and delivered it for new year sent it to him third of january they came back to me reading through this entire pitch, the pilot episode of this script that I, that I had written over this time and gave me the one phrase that made all of that pain and all of that shit worth it through it in the face of every single doubter that I had, including myself. Yeah. When they just come back and said, you are good. You are really, really good. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about taking chances. And there's also like, this is something I've said on other episodes before when people talk about various different things, whether it's, you know, addiction or whether it's um, depression or, you know, whatever the case may be. I think that people get it mixed up between treating the what versus the why. And do you know what I mean by that? Like if yeah. you're trying to treat, like if you're an alcoholic and you're trying to, trying to treat the alcohol use, you're not, you're completely neglecting the reason that you're doing it. And yes. if you neglect the reason that you're doing it, then that what is always going to come back because you don't treat the thing that's making you do it in the first place. And when it comes to other things, you know, whether it be seasonal affective disorder, depression, any of those things, if you don't look back into it and look and figure out the reasons why, like figure out the things that are, you know, fucking with you and the things that are kind of holding you down, like those types of things. If you don't go to therapy and work on those things, then the forward mobility is stifled. And a lot yes. of times it's hard to do that. It's hard to get back and like, you know, pour all your shit out on the table and be like, okay, this is happening because I keep on thinking about my dad or I keep on thinking about, you know, the, the time I was called fat in high school, like you know, whatever the fucking thing is, the thing that keeps on pushing you into doing that stuff. That's harmful. That's the thing that you have to attack. 
you know, once you get the therapy on those things, the other things start to fall into place. And like, once you start making that forward, you know, progression, even if it's a little steps, like a little bit here, a little bit there, even if it's just a day at a time, which is really like, I'm not an AA person, but it is definitely one day at a time because, you know, you've already lived through your past and the only way to predict your future is to create it. Aside from that, you live right now. That's it. Because you have no idea if you're going to wake up in the morning. You have no fucking idea. So all you do is do what you can today to hopefully create something that you can do later, you know? Wow, you absolutely nailed it. I don't think I could have put that any better myself. It's <laughs> it, it took me a long time to get there. <laughs> It took me a long time and it took me a couple of therapists. Actually, I had my, my very first therapist actually broke up with me the first day of therapy because he was just like, you know what? We're going to have to bump you up a level because this is not this is out of my pay grade, <laughs> which yeah, was actually I mean, it was great to me because he just he didn't even try. He just he said, what are we going to dig into today? And I told him and he was like, you know what? Not for me. We're going to go ahead and bump you up to the supervisor. <laughs> it's just like, God damn, bump me up to level two already. But, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, it's look, for, for all of those people out there suffering, you know, it is OK to, you know, as the shitty slogan that is 100 percent true, it's OK not to be OK. What it's not OK with is not admitting you're okay. You, know, right. you, you, you have to work on yourself. The reason why it hurts so much is because, yeah, you are different and that's a good thing. You know? Yeah, and also reaching out. you're in doesn't fit what you're supposed to be doing with life. And that doesn't mean you end your fucking life or go down a really bad road. It just means that you work on getting to where you should fucking be. Right. And reaching out for help does not mean weakness at all. In fact, it's quite a bit the opposite. It's actually, it takes a lot of strength and it takes a lot of guts to make that, you know, that reach. And um, for almost everything that you could be going through, there is help out there for it. Whether it's talk therapy, whether it's, you know, medication, whether it's, you know, uh, meditation, whether it's, going for a fucking swim like sometimes you just have to go feel nature like i'm not like i don't like hiking like i'm not like i don't have the body type of a person that goes hiking but sometimes the fucking trees are just like oh shit yeah these are actually these exist it's not just all concrete (laughs) you know like but if somebody asked me if i wanted to go on a hike it would be like you need to get out of my house right now like (laughs) i don't want to do that at all but yeah, sometimes going out and just fucking gr- feeling the dirt, you know, like feeling yeah. the earth and feeling the trees and like feeling some water that's not coming from a fucking fire hydrant. Sometimes <laughs> just going out and doing just that, sitting in a park. Like that's one thing that I actually used to do that I've been doing in New York. Sometimes when I'm feeling like really, um, I, I wouldn't say claustrophobic, but when I feel like uh, the the urban swell feeling a little too tight i'll go and i will sit in the park because there's a lot of those in new york and i will get like a little bowl of granola and i'll just put it in my lap or put it right next to me on the bench 
And then like fucking park squirrels will just totally come up and be like, oh shit, this dude has granola. And they'll come over and just like eat granola out of the bowl. Sometimes right on my lap, they'll just be sitting there chilling on my knee, eating granola out of a bowl. And people will walk by me and look at me like, are you insane? Are you a criminal? What are you doing? (laughs) You're just letting that squirrel eat out of a bowl on your lap. It's going to give you botulism or whatever people have told them that squirrels give you, you know? And I'm like, no, I'm just out here hanging out with the fucking animals that all of you, you know, fucking spit on. Like, yeah, dude wanted some granola. Hook him up with some granola, you know? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I am the worst person for actually getting out of the house because working on so many projects that I am because I'm just fucking workaholic. um, It takes up so much of my time indoors and it's like, oh, shit, it's 6 p.m you know my, my son's gonna be home soon and then mm-hmm. it's going to bed and you know watch a movie and shit like that and I, I sometimes just forget to get out the door and go for a walk and i'm my own worst enemy for it and especially it's like i i live in that dream of like i'm gonna set my alarm for 5 a.m and go for a walk for the first hour of the morning at sunrise do you know how many times i've actually managed to get out of bed for that shit I've tried that so many times and my body is literally like, whatever, asshole, you're going back to bed for two hours. <laughs> yeah. No, not while you've got these two pillows. No, but, not um, a chance. Especially you know, because you know, every time you do that too, you go to sleep at like three in the morning. You're like, you know, it's fine. I'll reset my sleep schedule. It'll be no big deal. And then absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. We all have the dream of getting that John Morrison body. And, you know, we all hope, shit, you know, I can see myself getting that in two or three weeks, you know, but (laughs) I don't even think John Morrison drives a car. I think he actually just does crunches down the street. (laughs) I actually know John. Um, what a dude has like 14 abs. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Christ. It's it. They never end. I, I put a picture where we were in uh, Los Angeles, just outside universal studios. We went for, uh, uh, lunch and uh, I got a picture uh, from my daughter who was a really big wrestling fan I thought she's going to absolutely love that I've got I'm sitting here you know talking about potentially doing a movie with John and um, I've heard John's awesome just like as a side note I've heard he's a fucking awesome dude he seems oh very he seems God. genuinely like just one of the sweetest guys outside of uh, wrestling he is what an amazing guy and he, he'd just done this movie called Boone the Bounty Hunter Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so, and he was meeting me on the way back from getting the trailer for it, you know. And he was like so excited, and we started talking. And he was originally going to be a, uh, hopefully a part of this, uh, the original movie I was going to do. And uh, just an amazing guy, and he he's so in tune. But I took this photograph and I put it on Facebook, and Jesus Christ, it if there was a line of women on Facebook. It was like Noah's Ark was going by. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm it sure, dude. Like, it's the first time I've ever seen a woman write in the comments, woof. <laughs> you know what's kind of funny is like every time I see every time I see a picture of him, I want to give Taya a high five. Like I wanna I wanna I wanna just give her a high five and be like, good for you. Like just good for both of you. Because you're both just you're just beautiful people. <laughs> just oh yeah, absolutely I, I, beautiful people. 
And to be honest, I, I've gotten to know so many of the wrestlers from, you know, this, this stall project that we didn't end up doing. It was going to be a, a wrestling movie. I'm hoping to get it done one day. Yeah. Um, you know, but I've got really good friends with uh, Glenn Jacobs, who's Kane, um, Dustin Rhodes. Uh, one of my closest friends is uh, Thrasher, the Headbangers. Oh, fuck. Um, yeah, yeah. Mosh and Thrasher. Yeah. I love both of them. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, Dwayne Johnson's cousin Lloyd. Um, Dude, Russell's can we voice. can we th- th- just mention how funny it is that somebody from the Anoe family is named Lloyd? Like, just... <laughs> Just Lloyd. Uh, Lloyd. Lloyd. Lloyd sounds like a dude man. that punches the numbers at a fucking office. And oh no, no, he's, no, he's part of one of the biggest Samoan families in entertainment. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I say what Lloyd is the man, and he actually trained Batista as well, and he trained Mickey Rourke for the wrestler. By the way, Lloyd would fuck you up, is what you're saying. <laughs> Lloyd, <laughs> Lloyd could <laughs> hand you your ass if Lloyd needed to. <laughs> Lloyd just may after he's heard this. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I think it's great because I mean, also, like, who the fuck's gonna look at the Rock and be like, "Your name is Dwayne, really?" Like, <laughs> nobody's gonna imagine that his name is Dwayne. Like, that's just not the name that you would think when you look at the Rock, like at all. Yeah. So, like the highest paid, uh, well, movie star, because uh, there's a very weird definition between movie stars and actors in this business. <laughs> He yeah he's he's a movie when, star. When he was when he was doing the rundown, he was an actor. When yeah. he was, you know, I'm gonna say arguably also when he was doing Doom, he was still an actor. <laughs> but like right after, like right when he started to make the jump into like starring projects that were not you know like the Tooth Fairy and shit like that. Once he started to make that jump, he became a movie star quickly. And it was like so that jump was almost became, immediate. Uh, Fast Five and GI Joe Two and Journey. Yeah, there's no reason for him to be in fucking Journey to Mysterious Island. <laughs> yeah, no, there was no reason for that. I will say, like, also he was in. He has one of the weirdest filmographies of anybody that's a megastar. Like when you look at it, it's such a weird filmography. You've got the Journey movie. You've got uh, Tooth Fairy. You've got Southland Tales, randomly, like which is a great movie. I like actually a lot. A lot of people didn't, but I thought it was great. But you randomly got him there. Uh, you got that movie that he did where he basically didn't say a word through the whole movie. And he just walked through shooting people in the head, um, which it was either called Driver. I think it might have been called Driver. Oh, Faster. Faster. That's what it was. Yeah, I love that I, movie. I always forget the name, but it's a fucking awesome movie. And he didn't even have to say anything. And he was still able to go scene for scene with Billy Bob Thornton, who is a (laughs) phenomenal actor, you know? So like, yeah, you got this dude. And then, then you got him fucking doing an American gladiator course across skyscrapers. Like (laughs) just what? I, (laughs) I, I guarantee you. Dwayne Johnson is going to be the first ever actor to make a movie on Mars. I would not be shocked. It's going to be the dude. The movie together, the fucking planet would implode a thousand percent. Like when I was watching the most recent fast and the furious movie, was it good? No, but was it ridiculous and fun? Yes. Did the rock did Dwayne, the rock Johnson 
curl a fucking helicopter while holding on to a chain? <laughs> yes, he did. Is that insane to say as a sentence? Absolutely. But then when you look at Dwayne the Rock Johnson, you're like, that actually makes sense now. Like, <laughs> you're like, uh, that dude seems like he would be able to curl a helicopter on a chain. Like, <laughs> he sort of uh, does. <laughs> I, I just would not put it past him. I mean, this guy was, you know, he was granted his opportunity in movies and just fucking around with even through all the movies that were flops and he knew what know, he was. He knew yeah. he knew exactly what he's doing. He was just like, oh, He's just got it. He's just got that confidence down. You know, he's he's comfortable in himself. You know, he did he did a really cool interview thing that I think it was done through Vanity Fair. It might have been done through Vanity Fair, but what they do is they take a camera and they move it really far away from you, and it's just the camera and the actor. And then as they move the camera closer, they ask harder and harder, more personal questions. To the point where when the camera is right in your face, and when I say right in your face, I mean it can't be more than six inches away from your face. They ask you the most personal question out of all of them. And his particular episode was really interesting because he really let you into a side of him as a person that I don't think most people ever knew about, you know. Um, and it was really cool. I'd have to look at it. It was either it was either Vanity Fair or it was inside. But it was one of the bigger publications like that. And it's it's just it's a very cool interview concept. Well, I'm hoping this episode is of use to you because you've got like the Zack Snyder version on mental health issues for the Germany Hour. Shit. I you know what? This is one of the interesting things about it. Some people want to do a wham bam thank you, ma'am type of thing when it comes to talking about mental illness, and some people want to do the stretch. And I like both. Um like full disclosure, breaking down the fourth wall, I totally had to put you on mute and t- like have you talk while I had to take the world's longest piss. Like <laughs> I still had you on the headphones like I could hear you. And like if I if I had to interact with you, I could I could do it. But like there was a point where I was like, if I don't do this now. I'm doing a lot of laundry tonight, like, sure. you know? So that basically means there was a portion of my interview that was basically just like a Bella Twins match. Yeah, it, absolutely. It was, there was a, there was a piss break portion of the, uh, <laughs> there was, we were, there was a point in the interview where it was Botchamania and uh, we had to go over. <laughs> you know, all um, of your listeners who have no idea of the whole wrestling world, we, we've just suddenly turned into um, something to wrestle with. Oh fuck, dude! Like immediately, um, yeah. what culture is gonna fucking email me? Like, I think we said that. <laughs> but um, sorry, Simon Miller, I love you. But if I if I stepped on your toes, I didn't mean to. Um, but f- way too much inside baseball for wrestling right at the end there. Um, but yeah, it was kind of funny because I did. I had you on the headphones. I could still hear everything that you were saying, and I was still like interacting with what you were saying. We were doing callbacks. But yeah, it was like an emergency piss. It was straight up. It was like, if I don't do this now, if I, I, this could be bladder cancer. I don't know. We have to go right now. Um, But the thing about mental illness stuff is that sometimes you can start talking about it and you, there's a lot to talk about. Like it's not experiences are not short. Like when it comes to mental illness stuff, because most of the time it's fucking drawn out through your life. You know, yeah, it's not something you're just sitting like, 
well, you know, I'm depressed on Tuesdays and then like the rest of the week is cool, but it's only been happening for like a month. Like, no, fucking this shit goes back like it almost always does. And uh, so I like having these conversations. I like having these things. And, you know, and a lot of it's for you as the guest to get this like to fucking get it off your chest, you know, because I don't think a lot of people are hitting you up and be like, hey, Andrew, do you want to come talk about all the bad shit that's happened and how you recovered from it? Or you does that sound fun? Like, you know, (laughs) I don't feel like that's a pitch that you get too often. (laughs) No, definitely not. And and to be honest, you know, it's uh, I've been really um and ganaring about shit. You know, do I really want to uncover all of this stuff? I mean, this is a lot of stuff people do not know, you know, um, and it's, you know, it takes a lot to really want to put all this stuff out there. But at the end of the day, you've got to look like the journey that you've kind of been on, you know, I'm not a person who likes to dwell on all the bad shit. The bad shit has happened. It's never going to change the fact that it has happened. It's how you deal with it, how you learn from it and how you move on. Yeah, you've already um, survived it. Yeah, for me today, I mean, this was really putting a lot of that shit behind. You know, I know there's a lot of people in my past that are a lot of hurt by shit that I've done. And all I can say, and I will say it right here, I apologize to every single one of those people. That's not who I am today. That's who I was at the time. And I know that my actions and the way I was and maybe the things I said and did hurt a lot of people. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. And I live with that. And the hardest thing about it is learning to forgive yourself in order to, you know, move and grow and progress. There's sadly some people who still view me as that person back in, you know, 95 to 2005. Right. I am not that person. And, you know, the things that I do is not reflective of who I am today. You know, I'm, I'm, I can honestly look back with a lot of shame of some of the shit that I did and the person who I was. Um, But I choose to not dwell on that anymore. And revisiting all of it today, you know, I've brought up stuff that I don't even think I've told my partner about. She's going to listen to this and be like, you fucking asshole. You (laughs) never told me that shit. (laughs) Listen, there's something to be said that is a little bit, it's like, it's a weird kind of comfort because when you have somebody that you're talking to that's just a friend, like just a friend, yeah. and you're doing it in a case that also you're doing it with you're doing it with intention of people hearing it and being helped. You know what I mean? So like there's the intention of it is for sure to get it off your chest and to talk about it also. But the underlying part of that, the intention is for somebody to hear this and be like, you know, maybe I'm not alone. You know, maybe the shit that I'm going through is something that somebody else understands. And that like kind of a thing does make it easier to talk about even subconsciously. Whereas like talking to a partner about it and stuff like I, you know, I get honesty within partnerships and relationships and stuff like that and transparency. But that stuff is also particularly hard sometimes to bring up to a romantic partner, life partner, whatever you want to call it. It is hard to do that sometimes because the risk versus reward scenario is whether you believe it to be or not is much higher 
You know what I mean? Because if you like if you're in a relationship with somebody and I'm not saying this by any means about you and your partner, but I'm saying as a generalized statement, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you have some shit that you went through and you bring it up to them and the reaction is bad. Then. It could be over, you know what I mean? Yeah, like that can end a lot of things. And if the reaction to it is not supportive like there's that that changes the shift of your life like at that point you know so there that risk reward is definitely a lot it's a definitely a lot higher and a lot stronger and more risky when it comes to that stuff and i do advocate for people if you're in a partnership with somebody that you love and somebody that you're very close with um yeah if you're going through shit fucking tell them like i it's kind of a weird comparison, but I compare it to the same way. Like if you're into something kinky, tell them early, like, (laughs) you know, you don't want surprises later on down the road. Like you don't want to be on the honeymoon and then like throw out some weird shit that you're into and then being like, Oh, gross. (laughs) Get that out of the way. And it's the same thing when it comes to mental illness. Like if you got something that makes if you got something, some brain worm, that you got going on like fucking let them know you know like hey just sometimes i suffer from depression sometimes seasonal you know seasonal disorder sometimes a seasonal affective disorder i mean sometimes uh you know my ocd goes fucking crazy uh i have a temper problem whatever it is you know like because when those things come up then it's not a surprise no very true because not Um, all surprises are good surprises sometimes they're bad surprises (laughs) you know yeah Yeah, you you gotta take them equally it's like i opened up this present it's a nickelback cd fuck why'd you do that (laughs) oh but the receipts with it that kind of battles it got that one um jonas i want to say um how fantastic your show is and how welcoming an experience this really has been and i really do want to encourage you know a lot of people to kind of take this time to really um if they've managed to get through my episode which i'm sure jonas is probably split into four chapters by now but um <laughs> nope dude we're going for... we're going the full two plus hours raw dog all right like there's we're, just we're past that now sure we're going we're... dude we're going skin on skin contact for this one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wait for the bonus features. Yeah, um, you're getting a little lubrication, but no rubber. It's just going straight in. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you've got an amazing platform here, and I think it's a very important and a game-changing platform as well, where you're really allowing a safe space for people to really be safe with themselves. And you know, the show has my support. And I really wanted to establish that by coming on here today and and being, you know, this being the kind of first place where I've really disclosed, you know, a lot of stuff uh, that people close to me and people who have worked with me and that do not know. Um, And it's been a major weight off my mind to actually kind of get this out today and, and kind of close the doors on, you know, this chapter of my life. So thank you very much. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, man, honestly. And I know that we had talked about it before and there was some hangups with getting it scheduled and stuff like that, you know, here and there. But, you know, I was glad that you came on for multiple different reasons, because I know just from our conversations that we had had through Facebook and stuff. And also when you were here, 
that I knew that there was some stuff that you had gone through. You know, we hadn't gotten into too crazy details or anything like that. But also, I could tell when I presented it to you that you did want to talk about it. You know, you weren't like it felt like there was something there where it was like, oh, fuck, maybe this is like maybe I can talk about this stuff. And I don't you know, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination saying that my show is the catalyst for that or anything like that. It's necessary. It's more that I I could sense that there was a want for you to get some of this shit off your chest. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, there was. And, and uh, it's uh, sorry. Go no, ahead. no, no, no. I was just going to say, I was, I'm happy that, you know, that the show was something that was a good vehicle for you to do it. Um, because I can tell you this, like, even if Lauren was on the show right now, if she was on here with me right now, her and I, uh, like, even though, like, she's married now to one of my fucking favorite people. We were in a relationship for a long time, but like our relationship was very open communication wise. Um, and so her and I as friends are two and also as professional colleagues are two of the least judgmental people in the world as far as this type of stuff goes for sure because her and I have both gone through mountains of traumatic shit and you know through different you know mental illnesses and whatnot so one of the reasons that we even wanted to do the show was sure we do want to joke about fucked up stuff because that's our humor anyway and that's how we cope with our own traumas but also it's a vehicle for people like you know whatever it is that's ailing you like you can fucking you can get it out and we're not going to shake a finger at you and that also goes out to our audience like when people come onto this show and they say the things they've gone through it's not to it, part of it is for sure for your entertainment because we do joke about stuff but also it is for your benefit like listen to these things hear these things hear these people's stories hear that they've recovered and hear the things that they do to help cope with these things so there definitely was that aspect of it too you know so it's kind of like a it's a hybrid thing and i'm glad that it works is <laughs> the best way for me to say it yeah. like it's I'm glad that we can joke about the fucked up stuff, but I'm also glad that we can just talk about the fucked up stuff. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's what I liked about having you on specifically because I know that there's there's definitely that line and that happy medium between those two things that you walk very well. Because I know that your sense of humor is dark. I know that you laugh at <laughs> fucked up stuff, you know? Like, that's why I came out the gate guns blazing with the fucking, you know, the Eric Clapton joke. Like, it's just like, yeah. we're going yeah, to establish uh... it. We're going to establish it right now. Um, but yeah, that's one of the reasons that I was happy to have you on, because you do toe that line well. And also with you being a filmmaker and also me knowing what types of movies that you're a fan of. You don't shy away from darkness. Ever, oh, no, you know, no, no, no. It, the, the darkness that everyone goes through when you can learn to tap into that and make it you know work for you especially if you're creative right find anybody in this industry who is not you know uh, a writer a director a musician uh actor whatever right that is really unique or 
you know, has a very unique vision. They've gone through shit. Yeah. They're probably still going through shit, right? I, I always bring up uh, Tony Scott. Oh, yeah. Tony Scott jumped off a fucking bridge. No one knew anything. Yeah. Right? You look at Tony Scott's stuff, it's all very Hollywood. You know, it's almost like a Coca-Cola commercial movie. You know, it was like Michael Bay before Michael Bay was Michael Bay. Right, right. You know, um, like you knew you knew it was a Tony Scott film as soon as the first film. Yeah, hit. yeah you, you knew it was a Tony Scott film. And it was one of the biggest shocks in the world, right? And uh, I remember, and I, re- I recently went to his grave in uh, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And uh, it's the most bizarre grave I've ever seen because it's got his resume on the side of his gravestone. So it lists every movie that he's made. And it's like, I've never seen that shit before in my life. That's bury me with my IMDb page. That is, (laughs) I've never even thought of anybody wanting to do that. Because listen, there's got to be some imperfections in that in that IMDb page. There's got to be one. There's got to be one that you're embarrassed about. I was, looking, <laughs> I was looking for it saying there has got to be one movie missed off here that it's like, well, we can't do that to him. But no, they're all no. there. No, all the, they, all they of them are in there. And it's like, you know what? That's fine. You know, take those movies to your grave, so to speak. Um, but you can look at any major artist out there. Are you going to tell me that people like Henry Selleck or Tim Burton or, or people like that or haven't got something fucking going on dude uh, tim burton tim burton made peewee's big adventure (laughs) like he that he started there like he started there and then made the hardest of left turns (laughs) and was like you know what fuck it we're doing batman and beetlejuice like he went from he just the the hardest of turns, both you know stylistically and everything. But if you look through Tim Burton's catalog, yeah, he's been through some shit. He's yeah. clearly been through some shit. Very likely going through shit as I say those words right now. Like yeah. <laughs> I feel like he but, probably is, you know. But you know, they've managed to harness that and make it work for them. And yeah, they've made it art. Express themselves, you know, from know their kind of pain or their fears or their insecurities and shit like that and they're able to transport that out there you know and if you want to be a creative in this business and really harness all that go the independent route you know you you do not need you know to to get into the hollywood machine to make you know a great performance or a great movie or anything like that i have friends of mine who are actors fucking tortured actors you know yeah. really tortured artists but they'll go and do a show at something like the edinburgh fringe a one-man show or stuff like that and sure. they're fucking amazing. yeah know, they're just like throwing like caution to the wind fuck it i'm just gonna go and do this and they do it and and if you really if you can harness you know all of that you know those mental problems and all of that pain and all that suffering and everything whatever you're going through um, you know, you can really find really good therapy through, yeah, you really can creatively. Um, there's one female director who did her life story of when she was, 
she was basically um, molested and raped as a as a child, and she made a movie of it called The Tale that starred Laura Dern. And uh, I'm so, I can't remember her name, but it was her story, and it was all fully accurate. And it's something she was suffering from for years, uh, where she was like abused by this guy and this this girl, these this couple. And she made a movie out of it, and she said it was it was the most, you know, getting rid of that pain by putting it out there into the world. Yeah, it was cathartic, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel so embarrassed. I can't remember her name. And That's okay. I mean, she's on my Facebook. She's gonna fucking kill me. Um, but yeah, um, if you if you want to, just to save your own ass, you can look that up while I tell you a story really quick. Um, good idea. But, um, so I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but it's a pretty recent um, news story <coughs> that Shia LaBeouf um, is kind of oh, yes. he's kind of coming back um, after, you know, being through various, you know, therapy and whatnot. Um, and a story just dropped about Honey Boy because Honey Boy, um, when I saw it, I was blown away. Um, I thought it was a phenomenal movie and full disclosure. I am a fan of Shia's work pretty much across the board um and i know that he definitely has his own demons and i know that he's gone through shit and you know again no judgment cast here um and you know maybe one day i'll talk to him on an episode and we can really get into the nitty-gritty of his shit but specifically with honey boy this is kind of an interesting thing because when that movie came out it was marketed as basically him playing his own father yeah in an accurate role now, when you watch that movie under that pretense, that movie is chilling. Like, it's that movie makes your skin crawl, but also at the same time, kind of just keeps you in awe. Like, it's a very, very, very good movie. Now, he recently came out, I think it was honestly just within the last couple of weeks, and said that he dramatized at least half of that. So he came out and he said that, like, I feel actually like a piece of shit because that's not my dad. Like, he basically said that he dramatized a lot of the abusive stuff and a lot of the stuff that was particularly hard to watch a father do to their son and stuff like that. So he came back out of it and it was kind of like, you know, for, for anybody that's been through AA, it would be a considered, it would be the part where you make amends, you know? And like I said, I'm not an AA person, but I'm familiar with people making amends for, you know, whatever they've done. And it was kind of him coming out and being like, you know what? Like, I know that a lot of people love this movie, et cetera, et cetera, but I fucked up because I painted my father in a way that he didn't deserve. And his dad is still alive like they still communicate and stuff um so for him to come out and say that means to me as somebody who watches you know has seen a lot of his films and seen kind of unfortunately seen his life kind of unfold in front of cameras what that tells me is that he is actually recovering from a lot of the stuff that he was dealing with because that's a real fucking hard thing to admit and it's especially a hard thing to admit to the world you know, because that's something that, again, when we talk about risk reward, um, if that backfires, he's done, you know, but at the same time, it kind of, for me, puts him in a better light, because if you make yeah. a fuck up, if you if you fuck up and you make a mistake like that, 
owning up to that, it, it gives you a lot more points in my book because that's a hard thing to own up to a very hard thing to own up to. No, you're right. Oh, by the way, it was Jennifer Fox. But yeah, oh, okay, um, <laughs> so, uh, get that one in there before. Yeah, Jennifer no, Fox, got it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Sh- Shire's, you know, you, you can get an entire episode kind of talking about that and combine it with, you know, the plight of people like Ezra Miller. Um, Ezra Miller is another interesting one. It's, yeah. it's a very interesting one. Um, you can go as far as Miley Cyrus. You can go forever. Uh, Britney Spears, you can do the entire lot. Like I mentioned before, if your fucking comfort zone is not developed, the fucking industry is not the place to be thrown into. 100%. Right. Um, because it's, it's, it's a machine. Right? It is a machine that will fucking grind you. It really does. And I, I remember one director telling me, best advice I'm ever going to give you is have your exit strategy already planned. It's good um, advice. That is good it, advice. It is because you never know when you're going to need it. Right. You know, um, y- you could look through every single person's career. There are people who are major stars who, you know, have completely dropped out of Hollywood. Right. And, as hard as this might be to for people to hear, they might actually be the smart ones. Yeah. Because their grounding and their comfort zone was in something happy and they're doing stuff now that is, you know, true to what they, you know, where their passion lies. Right? What you've got to look at with the whole in making movies and stuff like that, it's a job. Yeah. It's you know, you class it as a career or, you know, it's a persona. So I know it's a fucking job. Every job is a job. Yeah. If you're an actor or an actress, you're not playing the same fucking role all the time. You're doing a new job. You're, you're employed for four weeks on a movie shoot. Then you're fucking unemployed again. Mm-hmm. Right. It, every job is a job. And those jobs can stop, especially if you reach a certain age. Right. Right. And you've got to adapt. No, there's only uh, uh, what, probably 10% of major movie Hollywood stars who are still crawling out the, the A list after 20, 30 years. Yeah. It's not necessarily going to be that way for you. Right. So you have to have an exit strategy. I'm not saying, you know, be with Paltrow and go make a candle out of your vagina or whatever, you know, but it worked. Listen, I have to say something that gave me more respect for Gwyneth Paltrow for one specific thing. It is not because she made the vagina candle that actually gave me less respect for her. But when there was, I'm trying to think of what the movie was, um, but they were going through celebrities. Uh, It was a more recent movie and I would have to look it up. But at near the end of the movie, there was a big monologue of celebrities doing a cameo. And one of them was Gwyneth Paltrow. And she had her vagina candle. And she took a bite out of it. 
And then when she took a bite out of it, she like looked up in the air and gave that look like, and then she gave the nod of approval, like, yeah, that tastes accurate. And then wrote it down. And then it went to the next screen. And I was like, you know, that's a good fucking joke, Gwyneth. You know what? You took the shit. You took the shit that people gave you and you made it a good joke. Like you get my respect back for that one. Um, Cause yeah, when she made the vagina candle, I was like, you fucking cash grabbing asshole. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, the business uh, from my vantage point, it's frustrating and it can be, it, it can really bury you deep into depression for sure. If you let it. So what you need to approach it like, okay, it's, it's a job. You do the job, you leave. Sometimes you don't get the job. It doesn't mean that you're terrible or, you know, that you should be depressed about it. You're the same as every other person. Sure. You know, uh, like every other waitress in LA, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell, tell me if this is accurate to you. Tell me if this is something you would consider accurate because it's something that I've always kind of said about creating art. You create art for free. Yes. You sell art for money. Yes. Okay. Because the job is selling the art. You can create, you can create the art all fucking day long. You can create the art all day long, but until you sell that art, that that's the job is selling it to somebody, you know, creating it is the fun part. The rest of it. That's not fun. It's not fun to sell it to people. But that's no. the job, you know. It's it's not fun selling it to people. And to be honest, when I write now, I write more as you know a, a peaceful exercise, um, especially one. The amount of stuff that I write over the winter months, yeah, is ridiculous. I have twenty scripts sitting here, no one has even seen, and I've not even pushed them out there to be done. Sure, not even tried to sell them. Because they're exercises for me. Um, you know, if there's a movie or if there's a script I'm really passionate about, I'm like, okay, th- this is the one I know that I have to step out of, you know, that comfort zone and direct. Right. You know, and, and this movie is worthy of me taking it out there and directing it myself and, you know, doing that fight. And it has to be a project that I really do believe in to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll I'll happily write scripts for other directors, other production companies. They can come to me and say, uh, can you do a pass on this? Or could you do a draft of this? Whatever. And I'm happy to do that, sure. especially if they're paying. You know? Of <laughs> course, yeah. That's fine by me. Don't expect me to use up a spare time where I could be writing something that I really love writing. Of course. By doing it for free. Um, I'm the same way with photography. If somebody wants to hire me to do photography for like headshots or something, like fuck yeah, I'll come do that. But yeah. I'm gonna go out and take pictures of shit that I enjoy taking pictures of. I'll do that for free, just for therapy. I'll go out, yeah. and, you know, I'll photograph all of New York City just for fun and therapy. And somebody sees one of the pictures and they're like, "Hey, can you sell me that for a hundred dollars?" Like, fuck yeah, I can. Here you go. I'm like, yeah. you know, I, I kind of take that Harlan Ellison approach. When like someone expects shit for free, you know? right? Like, the expectation hey, look, is like, I'll do no, it. no, absolutely but, um, not. But yeah, I mean, for me, it, it still it still falls into a, something that I love. Okay, and 
as much as it's hard to love the business and the bullshit and the politics and stuff like that, I love the people, right? I have a shitload of friends in LA and New York as well now. Yeah. Hello to yourself also. <laughs> Present company included. <laughs> Present company included. You know, and I said, I was like, you know, fuck it. I enjoy having these friends that I can sit and talk, chat fucking sports or anything else. There's times when I've met up with these people that, you know, making huge movies and actors and that, and we never talk about the industry at all. And I like that. And then I've never, never in all of my years in the business, I have never pitched a project of mine to anyone. Never pitched a script. They've always asked, what are you working on? Can I read your script? And that's like, great. Yeah, that's great. Script. And they're like, holy shit, what are you doing with this? You know, and that's not a thing that's born from confidence. You know, it's a fact that I'm fucking shit at pitching because, right. you know, it's it's one of those things like I will seriously undersell this. I can't do that. You know, save the cat mentality. And I've read that right, right. fucking times, you know, and I believe in it and I, I do press it. But when it comes to me getting up there and, and selling it, I'm one of those old school words like, well, fucking read it. Right. Yeah. Read the script. Read <laughs> read, read the first eight pages. If you don't get past the first eight pages, then it's not for you. Yeah, but, which I think I mean, is totally fair. Yeah, you know, and and I'm not hurt by that. It just means that you know it's it's not something that speaks to you. You have a very certain set movie that you want to go and make. But what I can tell you, um, from the amount of heart that I've put into it, if you get past page eight and get to the end, you'll suddenly It'll be like, pay off. Shit. yeah." yeah. You know, and that happened with Deeper Than Six Feet. I had um, Bill Daly. He read half of it. And I'm like, I'm not really feeling this. I'm not seeing where it's going. I say, okay, well, just do me a favor. Just finish it. You've gotten this far. Just finish it. And when he got to the other end of it, he was like, holy shit. You know, this is, I, I've just completely changed around. This was the guy who was the senior vice president of Warner Brothers saying this. Right. You know, and he, the amount of movies he had seen from 1990 to the, like 2012 alone. Right, Just all of the astronomical, yeah. And he actually went on a podcast, a combat radio podcast, with Ethan Dettenmeyer. Hey, Ethan. Um, and they were doing an episode, and they were asking, "Oh, Bill, what are you working on?" So I'm doing this movie on deeper than six feet. Now, can you say what it's about? And his words were, uh, "It's it's just like when we made the Matrix. Um, I can't tell you." you're never going to forget it. I love that. And it was like, fuck, you know, and I saw this live. It was on a video podcast and I was watching it. And, you know, so it's, it's just that kind of script that, you know, it's just, it reminds me of when we first saw or read the matrix script. So we, we, we can't explain it, but we just know it's something. Yeah. Really special. And, and there's like, certain there's certain movies that come along like that every now and then that are just like even if you don't see where they're going in the beginning by the time you hit the end of the movie you're like I will not forget that movie. Exactly, I, I seriously undersell my work. I really do because uh, I, I try the whole oh just give them the, the elevator pitch or something like that. I, like, I can't do that. I hate no, elevator pitches. I hate them yeah. so much. It's it, it's such bullshit. At the end of the day, if someone fucking wants to read your script they'll read it for sure 
you know, and you've got to have the confidence. Uh, and there's, there's so many people who, who, you know, ask me for advice and I always give the same advice and they probably don't take it, but it's like, have you got a script? If you haven't got a script, why are you trying to make the movie? Right. Right. The script is, it's your blueprint. If you don't have a complete script, don't send me half a script and then an idea for where you're going to go. Because I guarantee you, you're not going to go that way. No, you got to have a beginning, middle and end. You got to. Yeah. You know, and when I wrote Deeper Than Six Feet, I, I just started writing and I knew I had to write this kind of story. And no one was more surprised at me how it turned out. But I, and I, knew, I knew I had something. I didn't think it was good. I had to get reassurance from someone else who, and he was a, you know, a New York producer. So I knew I was going to get either fucking annihilated or get the truth. <laughs> and um, presently came back to me and he just said, this is the best thing you've written. You know, and this, it, I don't understand how you've made this work, but it works so well. And even me, I, out of everyone involved in it, I'm still the person who's looking for the flaws. Well, sure. That kind of even comes with comedy. Like, we're our own worst critic because yeah. we're the one that created it. So, yeah, we know that it came out of our brain. But we know also that nobody else was in our brain when we wrote it. You know, like, I have jokes in my act that are about really fucked up things. And I know in my brain why they were funny. But are the people that hear it, are they going to know that it's funny? Or yeah. is it going to hit them differently? So, like, yeah, we are definitely our own worst critic when it comes to the art that we create, no matter how good it may be. You know, it's we will look at it with completely different eyes yeah, than I mean, somebody else will. It, it, it's so concrete in my head. Um, and I'm like, I know how to make this movie, right? Or at least I know that it's going to be different have, than how it is in my head. I know exactly how to pull this off. And that's not overconfidence. You know, that is just belief that I know how to tell this story. Uh, and that's why you kind of fight for it. And, you know, you, you get those instances where, oh, you know, who would be great directing this? I'm like, yeah, motherfucker me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't bring up the fucking name of this person and that person. You know, that's not a person that I, I believe can pull this off. That's a person yeah, it's like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> you know, um, and I'm very much the same when it comes to talent as well. It's like, yeah, you know, throw me some names, but I know who can work in this. Right. And I want to throw their name into contention for it. If they're not available, then fine. Um, but, you know, I don't want to make that sound really kind of egotistical and narcissistic. No, but... no, it's not at all. It makes sense. It yeah. 100% makes sense. There's nothing narcissistic or egotistical about yeah. that at all. But uh, I met um, oh, earlier this year in L.A., uh, my last day in LA, uh, I got to meet George Gallo. Oh shit! Oh, and I'll, for those of you who don't know, George Gallo is he's a writer director, but for, for all his accolades, he wrote Midnight Run. Yeah. Okay. Which is one of the greatest buddy movies ever. Really is. Yeah. Um, if you never fuck with Midnight Run, you need to go check that one out soon. Yeah. And I'm really good friends with John Ashton, who played Hank as well. And, oh uh, shit! Mar That's nice. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, um, and he's just gone to do Beverly Hills Cup four, which is fucking awesome. But um, 
that's so wild that, that movie's coming out and they have they have a lot no. of the original people coming back too <laughs> please don't fuck it up so i'm saying please don't fuck it up yeah. don't let it be beverly hills cup three again um but, but better yet don't make it don't make another don't make a coming to america like just don't do that like that's oh, oh, like, don't don't do that see me no give um, us a good beverly hills cop please <laughs> yeah well i had to if anything for with... judge reinhold give it to give it to judge reinhold he deserves yeah. another good he deserves another good beverly hills cop movie he does he does but um yeah in, in meeting george and i'd had him on Hollywood as a guest um and we clicked brilliantly really well so it's like i really want to meet him so i got to meet him on the last day and um we went for lunch and just really sitting down and i'd sent him the script i said would you mind just reading it he's like yeah sure send it over and uh, i hadn't had any feedback from him <laughs> so we went to lunch on this day because like, i don't know if you got a chance to read it he says oh says, andrew i've got to tell you says i was so scared of reading that script says i was so scared because i like you so much and i was so <laughs> scared that your script was going to be fucking terrible you know and, and i wouldn't have the heart to tell you that you know how bad it was or anything it's shit just like yeah you're a real great guy but this is but, this is shit what yeah, did you do yeah <laughs> uh, and it was so honest and then he just said i read it and i couldn't believe what i was reading he says this script is so tight and so well constructed and hits every mark and um it was crazy it was it's one of those moments that makes your entire career worth it sure right and you know for him to you know extend his offer of help to try and you know, get this, this movie made was just incredible I have been incredibly fortunate. I've not been financially successful in the business. It takes a long time to get there too, though. Oh yeah. I don't think people realize how like the actual amount of time and work that it takes to get financially successful as a screenwriter or a director. Like it's just, it takes a lot. Yeah. The one thing that I do have to specify here for all those people like just trying to get into directing and wanting to direct, you know, movies and, and thinking that you can get overnight success. It's not a case of that. You know, you can go, uh, you, there's two options you can take here. One, you can take the path of making whatever movie you can and getting the education and, and the experience and working on movies that, you know, you really don't want on your CV. Right. You know, uh, and you know, you, even you think, oh God, the terrible. Hey, at least it's experience on the CV and stuff like that. For sure. Then there's another way, and it's being patient, and it's learning, and it's not necessarily putting all of that stuff on your CV. And I, I don't want this to sound like you know I'm better than those people. I'm not. I knew that one. I was flat fucking broke. I mean, flat broke. I mean, yeah. we, we were struggling to pay our like gas and electric bills. At some right. Point. Right. And I was like, I can't afford to keep, you know, taking days off to go and do this, go and do that. I can't take, I've got to look after, uh, you know, my son, you know, I've got to 
go and earn money to pay the rent and everything else. And I'm lucky if I've got time in the day. Right. right? It's taken the exact same amount of time in projects not getting off the ground and not having the on-set experience. But mm-hmm. the time that I've used has been making myself better. Sure. And sitting there in front of directors, in front of producers, picking their brain respectfully. Because trust me, if you get their fucking time and they're giving it to you, don't be an asshole. Yeah, you got to respect that time. Yeah. Because they, they had all the right in the world to tell you to fuck off. And the oh, yeah. fact that they didn't means that you des- they deserve the respect of the time, at, at and, the very least. And don't fucking pester them. For God's sake, right? If they s- you send them something, and if you're sending them like messages every other day or constantly asking for their time, trust me, you're getting fucking annoying really quick. Right? And be, re- be respectful of their time because they have families, they have projects, they have bills to pay. Their time is not fully yours. If they are giving you an hour, wrap it up at 50 minutes and say, I want to thank you for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. And is it possible we can maybe talk again down the line? You'll tend to want, if you are more considerate of their time, you know, they will openly say, reach out to me again. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely will. But I have, I have noticed that in practice. Like I've, I've absolutely noticed that just in practice. Yeah. But just, you know, keep in mind, and and it goes for actors and everyone else as well, that, you know, their time is not fully yours. Right. You know, so, you know, be respectful of it. I have it with, you know, direct friends of mine. You know, look at David Zucker, Russell Mulcahy, um, George Gallo, you know, I reach out to them maybe once a month and say, oh, maybe we can get together at some point, you know, either have a Zoom or a phone call or whatever, and ask someone's best, you know. Right. But I don't fucking pester them. And I've had it where people do come up to me, you know, saying, oh, you know, can can you maybe give me some guidance? I will happily give guidance. You know, I will happily do that. And, you know, and they'll, they'll get to the point where it's like, oh, you know, can I send you my script? And I'll be very honest with people. I'll say, look, you're going to send me this script. But realistically, that's an hour and a half of my time, at least. Yeah, minimum. You want me to read this thing and then come back to you on it. And you've got to be respectful of the fact that I may not have that hour and a half. You know? Um, yeah, and that you're setting it aside to do yeah. this for this person. Because the the reason you're coming to me is because, you know, I am doing something in the business where I've got some experience, you know, or whatever. Um, But that experience is coming from working and working on projects and, and, you know, I've not took a teaching degree or anything like that. (laughs) You know, I am working on writing. And when you've got a family, you know, and when you've got responsibilities and you've got bills to pay and stuff like that, you're, spare time that you have generally will always be dedicated on what your next project is going to be. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So if someone is going to take that time in reading a script, 
you've got to be respectful that it may not be the next day. It may not even be that month. Right? So you've got to kind of gauge the point where maybe three or four weeks have passed and maybe just say, oh, hey, uh, I just want to check in. Hope you're doing okay. Um, hopefully we can have a chat again. And that's probably going to spill and say, oh, maybe I should just read the script before I chat to them again. Right. Having just like a little reminder every now and then, I don't think it's a problem. And I think everything you said is 100% accurate. You know, it's good advice for people, especially in the industry that are, you know, trying to reach out to people or <clears throat> not necessarily pitch, but even just reaching out to people for a question or for a direction or whatever it is, you know, whether it's a, a full blown pitch or whether it's just something as simple as a recommendation, you know, fucking whatever. People in the entertainment industry, generally people that are actually working in the entertainment industry are busy as fuck. Like it just, there's yeah. no way to get around it. Whether it's you and I doing something like this, or whether it's somebody who's reading scripts 24 seven or somebody who's in the middle of making a movie or whatever it is, like people are busy, you know, and that respect goes a long way. Like it really it does, does go a long way. It, it it truly does. And trust me, they have the term, you know, snowflake in the industry for a reason. Right. Uh, because there are people and uh, I've experienced a couple of them in the past where they've, you know, reached out to me and friends of mine in the business have had them where, you know, they'll come across all nice and asking you to read a script. And then they get really very possessive yeah and you know they they can be they can turn a bit nasty and then that comes from a lot of these people just want to be in this business you know and they want to be the the ultra successful screenwriter or director or, or this that or the other um but trust me you know there is a right and a wrong way to go and you don't want to end up on, you know, that list. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on it. Names get around, trust me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People talk. That is a for real thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no and way of getting around that. That All you have to be is uh, one person who you've just started talking to, uh, be in a meeting with someone you've already pissed off. Yeah, that's never a fun feeling. Because no. in comedy, it's the same way. Like if you get into a room, into a green room with a booker that you pissed off, it's just like, oh fuck! Now it's going to be this energy. Like it's just like yeah. this is not. Nobody's having fun being here now. This isn't great. Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like we should probably wrap up this Joe Rogan experience length conversation that we've had. Um, I, I don't know. Are you pushing this entire fucking thing out in one, or are you cutting this down? You know, I don't know. We'll we'll see how I feel about it. I might do yeah, a little bit of both. You could, you could take like three weeks off by splicing this into three episodes, <laughs> like week. I might do part one and part two, but I don't know. It depends because honestly, this this conversation, if there was a part in this conversation that I felt like it was a lull, I might chop it up. But I don't think there was like because this was this was a story driven conversation about experiences, which, like I said, that's kind of what we do here. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how I feel about it. Um, you know, 
I, uh, you know, I think at most it would be part one and part two, but we'll see. No, you know, well, like I say, I'm appreciative of the time. I felt really comfortable. It's like I've gone probably two hours over. <laughs> no, there's no, there's no time limits here. There's no. no time limits here at all. Trauma doesn't get trauma doesn't have a time limit. Why the fuck's the trauma hour gonna have a time limit? Exactly. It kind of goes against the name of the trauma hour. Listen, this happened to be three trauma hours, but that's fine. (laughs) The the Snyderverse version. It is. It's totally that. It's like this is the. You remember when that movie Gods and Generals came out? And like, you look at a movie and you're like, is that movie four hours long on one thing? Like that's not. That's not a stephen king miniseries that's like that's a whole movie all right <laughs> oh yeah uh, i liken it to uh wim wenders until the end of the world the full yeah. fucking version of it that's yeah like, yeah what, seven hours long some shit it, like that wild it's crazy but I've no this... got it and i've never managed to get through it <laughs> um well yeah that's a trek that's a whole trek um but yeah this this conversation was great and honestly like i couldn't be happier to have you on the show and to talk through all this and uh this is the fun part of the show where you get to tell people where to find you <laughs> where can they find uh, you online oh where can you find me online yeah. um well i guess we've got to kick off with our podcast partywood of mm-hmm. which you are also a recurring member and we've got to get you back on to um come and do a roundup we're gonna have to shit on some movies that's what we're gonna have to do on that <laughs> one yeah we, we only want to hear about the shit movies Dude, we, the, the summer the summer and summer ended uh, with some turds so we're gonna we're yeah, gonna have turds. a couple to talk about <laughs> yeah uh, i never forget the uh jurassic world dominion review you gave us and then i actually watched it and i was like i don't know if the movie is worse than his review <laughs> right like i tried i held back a little bit on that one because i was like oh fuck i want it i want to be wrong because you brought back the original cast and i love them and no, it was it was as bad as I thought, if not worse. Yeah, all I can say is, uh, well, I, I can't even say much. But anyway, um, yes, Pottywood, uh, you can find it through pretty much all of your podcast places, everywhere from Spotify, uh, Acast. Hopefully, we're now working on Google uh, Podcasts. There has I been believe you issue. are. I believe you're on. Okay. I believe you're also on. Uh, I believe you guys are on Google Podcasts. Uh, Title, I know for sure because Title is what I use a lot um, yeah. for music. He throws us out everywhere. Yeah, and, yeah. So uh, I think I think YouTube you guys are on all those. We're on YouTube in case you're you know cheap as fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't mm-hmm. want to pay. Um, we are doing something really special with this new season. Uh, we call it a new season. It's just basic way of saying we've took a fucking break. <laughs> yeah, and now we're back, season two. Yeah, but yeah, we're doing some uh, we're doing some fun stuff. We recorded our first episode last night, which will be going out next week. Nice. Um, which was it was really good to kind of be back at it. Uh, so, Partywood, uh, please come and join us. Please come and subscribe. We have some fantastic guests on, and we have a lot of fun on it. Um, it's a great show by the way and i'm not even saying that as a biased thing because i've done the show like it legitimately is a great show especially if you're into talking movies like you're into talking about film and into talking about people that are in the industry and talking with people that are in the industry like it's a great show and you and steve have such good fucking chemistry like it's just it's fun (laughs) it's fun from top to bottom yeah we love um bringing like all of these artists from hollywood and all that we bring them on 
and they're instantly disarmed within the first 20 minutes yeah. and if you really want the one of the best episodes we ever did with the actor rick ravanello the comfort levels this guy had he genuinely was crying laughing during love the it. episode absolutely and, love uh, that you you've got to hear it it will just cheer you up and some of the stories we had about steven seagal are incredible that's he sold me <laughs> for the wrong reasons you've got yeah, to hear of course it. that's why you sold me <laughs> uh so yes we have a facebook page uh that you can find uh we're also fucking nerds and we've got a linkedin page as well <laughs> you got a linkedin so i i was thinking you were going link tree but you went you went full dork and you went oh, linkedin yeah, yeah. Right. oh yeah it's it's amazing how many creatives there are on linkedin just it really is out. yeah so there really really is honestly if you're in the creative industry whether it's film or you know comedy or whatever uh we talk shit about linkedin but there are a lot of contacts on there so that is for sure a thing when i ran into problems getting um contact information for certain guests for the horror podcast i'm like you know what i think i'm gonna go fuck around in linkedin and see what i can find and then sure enough it's just like really just been hanging out in here the whole time um yeah um <laughs> so Bodywood yeah. for sure and then anywhere that they can find you specifically are you doing anything online that you um, uh would want to throw out there also fine if not but if there is toss it out now to be honest uh for for kind of general public, i mean my facebook i, I kind of keep it kind of tight your, nowadays your facebook is pretty tight and chill like yeah it, it's tight and chill um so you know it's I, I, I get a lot of friend requests now, but it's like, you know what, I'm approaching that 5,000 and I don't want it to get to the point where someone, you know, really vital is going to want to friend request me and then suddenly they can't because I'm right, right. people. Unfriending people isn't nice because, you know, they, they suddenly think they've done something really wrong and it's not. Here's the, here's the secret to it, though, Andrew. Here's the secret. Go through your friends list. Just take a night and just go through your friends list and just scroll. I guarantee you that a hundred of them are either dead <laughs> or, or dead accounts. One of the two, because I did that. I had to actually go through my friends list and I had to remove people because I was having some people that were going to friend request me that were important. And I went through there and I was like, I was like, dude, like 50 of these people are dead, like dead, dead. Like these are memorial accounts now. I hadn't even seen an announcement. Like, it, it is true. There, there I have been to be sad eight months ago now. This is what? <laughs> like, yeah. What happened? Yeah, there's there's been a fair number of people I know that have definitely died. But you know, it, it's like collecting rare Pokemon. You know, you just want to keep them on there. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane, but it is true. It's very true. true. Uh, you uh, just you just haven't the heart to you know let go of these people yet. Yeah, because you never know when that when that fucking mint condition Charizard is going to pop up, and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I got rid of it. Like, <laughs> and there's no way they're going to accept me if I friend request them again. No, but, you, you know. can't. You can't friend request a ghost. That doesn't work. <laughs> no. that, um, I did have Instagram, but I'm, I'm choosing to distance myself from it. I'm kind of distancing myself from Twitter as well, even though there is an account there. Um, you can't Twitter find me. Twitter is a cesspool. <laughs> Yeah. And other than that, you know, the, the Pottywood Facebook page is a good enough place to cool, you know, catch up and stuff like that. Right on. Uh, and other than that, you know, I'm working on some projects. I'm hoping to get deeper than six feet underway. 
this year, if not next. Uh, I'm also working on a series. There'll be more about that shortly. Uh, we've just been working, developing, and editing that together. And Pottywood is actually going to video episodes when we have guests on as well. So hell yeah, I'm uh, I'm probably going to bother you to send me the script for Deeper Than Six Feet because I'm already into uh, I'm already interested in that. So. Um, but uh yeah if you guys uh definitely follow pottywood everything that he's doing uh and it does sound like it's uh it does it sounds like it does don't spell it with two t's because i feel like that's going to be a different google search if you search for pottywood with two t's so it's pod like podcast p-o-d-d-y like <laughs> so make sure that you search for the word properly uh yes pottywood i think it's it's great um you guys will love that um the traumedy hour you can go to uh multiple different things we're on instagram facebook twitter all those things um me personally you can find me at jonas barnes on twitter that's where most of my wrestling takes and shit posting goes uh and you can find me on instagram at jonas barnes comedy which is where most of my photography and my memes go uh and also show flyers and then if you really want to get into my stuff, you got to go to my Facebook. And this one's tricky because my Facebook gets blocked a lot because I say shit that Facebook doesn't like sometimes. So the one that is always active is the Facebook account under my name, Jonas Barnes, that has the profile picture that is Guy Fieri's body with Willem Dafoe's face. So you go to the you go to the profile that has the nightmare fuel for the profile picture, and that's the real one. Do you know what is also incredibly confusing is that there is a Hollywood producer with the same name of Jonas Barnes. I know, and he made a shitty horror movie called Babysitter Wanted, and I want to get him on my horror podcast, I think. I think. I don't know if I can do it. But I kind of want to just because I want to do the living version of the Spider-Man meme where we're just pointing at each other like I like shitty horror and you made <laughs> shitty horror and your name is my name. And this is a weird timeline jump. <laughs> this is weird. I'm pretty sure I'm also connected to that Jonas Barnes as well. Fucking dude, man. He like this. I have no ill will towards this Jonas Barnes at all. None. I saw the title of his movie and I was like, Babysitter Wanted. I was like, it sounds like it's probably a shitty, fun horror movie, you know, um, which is cool. And then I saw the cover and I was like, this is definitely a shitty, fun horror movie. <laughs> and then I watched it just out of solidarity for the name. I was like, I have to fucking watch this movie now. And then I did. And all of my suspicions were proven to be true. And it was just like, now I got to fucking now I got to meet this dude. Now I got to like he makes things that I enjoy inherently and he has my name so it's like now nah, fuck now i gotta now nah, yeah it's gonna be a weird timeline <laughs> it's just but, gonna be what, weird what, what i've got to say the most amazing thing uh, about you jonas is the fact that i can put jonas barnes into facebook five profiles come up and you are the top five <laughs> right yes yes <laughs> That's the funny thing is when I looked at this dude's information because I was like, there's no way that my name is going to come up above this guy. Like when I look up shit on like IMDb or whatever, I was like, it's going to it's going to fuck me over. I got to give myself a stage name now. And then I looked and the dude's done like three things on IMDb. So I'm like, you know, fucking maybe. All right. Maybe I got maybe I got a chance. Like, you know, <laughs> I think he did babysitter wanted me. He was just like, you know, it's enough of that. I think I'm OK. Like, 
Uh, oh yeah, I, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people I know that do those. Uh, no, they do those uh, director DVD uh, horror movies and then just disappear. I listen. I'll tell you this before we get out of here. I will throw this out here as a recommendation. If you want to go into the five dollar Walmart bin of horror movies from one director, look up the name Mark Polonia because this is by no means is this me shitting on Mark Polonia. First off, I want to throw that out there right now. He knows what he did. Okay. He knows, (laughs) he knows what he did and he knows what he's doing. He fucking made Amityville in space. All right. He knows what he's doing. And he has made so many movies that I think his combined filmography has a budget of $2,000 and he has made, he's made fuck 50 movies at least minimum and all of them are pieces of shit and they're so fun like again he just gobbles up properties like amityville and stuff like that and then just belches out these awful cgi movies that are incredible in their awfulness so like they're my favorite kind yeah if you're into just dog shit b movies like this dude it's actually the Polonia brothers. It's Mark Polonia and his brother. I can't remember his, his brother's name, but Mark is always the one that comes up as a director. And like, it sounds like I'm shitting on him, but this is said with so much respect. Like this dude, I've never seen a director that is so in the pocket of how bad his films are that he's just like, fuck it. I'm going to cast the same people. I'm going to use the same first generation of iMovie to make my effects. Like I am just he's gonna go right in and he's so, gonna so do he's it. basically Andy Sidaris reborn. He yeah, dude. He is he is uh fucking uh, it's he's like a new version of Roger Corman, but if you gave Roger Corman a computer and said this is the first computer ever made, and now I want you to make digital effects on it, like he's that <laughs> Like again, I say this with respect because he knows exactly what he's doing and doesn't give a fuck. He does okay. not at all. Like he knows okay. what he's doing. For you and your listeners on the show, I am instantly going to make your life so much better by recommending that you go on YouTube and watch what I believe the full version of this movie is there. A movie called Day of the Warrior. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna tell me to watch the Roger Corman, Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> oh, no, once is enough. Day of the Warrior. No matter who you are, you will feel so much better after watching this movie. It is my favorite worst movie. Beautiful. Ever. And I cannot wait for. I mean, me and you have this thing when we watch uh, a movie, we'll send a message like to each other if we've seen it, especially yeah. if it's terrible. Or yeah, absolutely. Or if it's brilliant. Now, I want you to go and watch this movie and message me as soon as you have watched this movie because I know you are going to love how terrible this movie is. I will do that for you, Andrew, and you have to do one for me. Go on. You need to watch Birdemic. <laughs> I've seen it. Okay. All right. If you haven't yeah. seen Bird, by the way, listeners, if you've not watched Birdemic, um, watch that movie for a masterclass in not giving a fuck about the effects that you put in a movie. 
because uh, what was that what is it that they did with the birds what were the birds weren't they like <laughs> like they for sure weren't real birds but they also weren't even like they were kind of digital effects like i, I don't know what the fuck they were oh jeez oh, i'll tell you what they weren't even oh. green screened like they were i think they were like paper birds like you know what i mean Phil Tippett would roll over in his grave and he's not even dead yet. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. If you guys haven't watched Birdemic, uh, it also has a sequel. So you can definitely Ooh. check that one out if you want to. Um, but yeah, I will uh, I will jump on to the Day of the Warrior. Um, I'll watch that soon. So Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to thank you and your listeners for putting up with me for either the two episodes or the one super episode that you've just listened to. I know, you know, listening to one person's history can be a bit monotonous, and I hope I've at least been entertaining for you. No, you have, man. This has been a great episode. And again, listeners, uh, you know, we'll see what we do. Maybe this is a one episode thing. Maybe it's two episode thing. We don't know yet. But this was a great episode. Um, This is also an episode that I think is kind of the first of its kind as far as what we've done with the episode because we've gotten a lot of back and forth, but you're the first person that has like legitimately told your story, which is great. Like that's what I've, that's one of the things that I've wanted. So truly like friend to friend and podcast host to podcast guest. Thank you very much for doing that and being open enough to do it. Um, on my end, listeners, like if you guys are going through some shit, if you are having problems and you feel like you can't talk to somebody, um, there is help out there for sure, like I've told you, but also feel free to blow up my messages. You can send me messages on Facebook, on Instagram. You can send me them on Twitter. Like I'm more than happy to listen if you need to vent some shit out. Um, if you send me a picture of your dick, I'm going to send you a picture of a bigger, worse dick. So don't do that. That I don't recommend that. That will be a war that you will lose. But if you have problems and you want somebody to listen, I'm more than happy to do that for you. Um, and uh, this has been this episode of the Traumedy Hour. We'll be uh, back next week as well. Um, and in the meantime, uh, enjoy yourselves, be safe, and have a wonderful night. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>